Our panel of break-fix petrolheads are back for another rousing what-should-I-buy debate. Using unique shopping criteria, they are challenged to find our first-time collector the best vehicle that will make their friends go, where do you get that? Or what the hell is wrong with you? At the next Cars and Coffee. Heralded as one of the greatest decades in history, when greed was good, Jordash jeans were worn above the belly button, hair stood on end, with aid from Aquanet, bands like Depeche Mode ushered in a new generation, and a next generation of sci-fi was also born. Cars were seen also as superheroes. This is the only time where there is a juxtaposition of both analog and digital, while a generation of petrolheads were both living their best lives and early adopters simultaneously. The malaise era might have been the start of the square bodies and round headlights movement. Oh, the 80s. That was the era of MTV, killer bees, body kits, and a massive evolution in the automotive industry, where arguably some of the iconic cars of our generation were born and carry on through today. That's right, Brad. And like all good What Should I Buy episodes, we have some shopping criteria. This time, we're going to settle a long-standing argument about hot hatches. What is the actual difference between a shooting brake, liftback, hatchback, wagon, or a sports coupe? Our panel of petrol heads are challenged to solve that mystery, as well as find our first-time collector the best econo box that will make their friends go, where'd you get that at the next Cars and Coffee? Picking up where we left off, the year is 1983 and there is no Corvette, but instead the world is introduced to GTI. Joining us tonight are veteran What Should I Buy panelists, our 90s expert Mark Shank, Don Weyberg from Garage Style Magazine, William Ross from Exotic Car Marketplace, Bowtie Man and Square Body Historian Mountain Man Dan, and returning guest Jeff Willis, along with our executive producer Tanya. Welcome to the show, everyone. Let's go retro. This is the real 80s on 8. Thanks, Brad. All of us here either have lived with, enjoyed, or still own an 80s vehicle. So let's set the mood with a little bit of a roundtable talking about our favorite personal 80s vehicles and maybe in our fleet. And Dan, you're limited to only one. Fair warning. You got to pick your favorite square body out of all those years. <laughs> so why don't we kick it off with newcomer Jeff Willis. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. In my fleet right now, I've got a 1980 Porsche 928. It's straight piped. It's totally got the race livery on it, but it's all road legal pretty much. <laughs> so I'll leave that to whatever you want to think about that. We'll have to scrub the recording. Yeah, right. <laughs> California officials are on looking for you right now. <laughs> the 80s are my jam. My very first car was a 1986 Camaro. And I know that we're not supposed to talk about those, but other than that, I have a whole list of wish cars that I'll be talking about at some point during the podcast today. Another man of the 80s, Mr. William Ross, what you got for us? Well, I don't have anything in my current fleet that's from the 80s, but I'm a big fan of the Fox Body Mustang, but I like the 5 liter notchback. So nice undercover, you know, low key, doesn't have all the flares, that kind of stuff on the GT version of it, but just a nice five speed, five liter notchback. A little birdie told me you also owned a Fiero at one point. Heck yeah, I did. I had a Fiero. <laughs> Here's how it started my 80s class. My first car was a Mazda GLC hatchback. Beat the living crud out of that thing, jumping over railroad tracks and stuff like that. Then I moved to my Fiero GT. Love that car. I think it was great. You know, a little go-kart. And then I had my Mustang GT, had an 85 GT. Free, you know, all the flares and stuff on it. So it was kind of nice hatchback, but 
had that through into college. So yeah, I had my fair share of fun stuff in the 80s. Tanya. My 80s car is in the photo right there and in my garage at the moment. 1985 Audi Coupe GT. Well maintained and fully restored on the exterior and the interior is pretty immaculate too. Great car. Tanya, I gotta say when you popped up and that little GT was sitting back there, my heart literally did stop for a second because I was practically raised in one of those things. My uncle was Porsche Audi dealership owner and he liked the Audis because they were a little more conservative. And so he always drove these gray or dark silver Audi four-door sedans. And then one day he shows up with that. The year is 1987. The month is April. And Uncle Howard is getting down in his 70s and he's feeling youthful again. And he wants to relive his second childhood. And that was the car he was, by God, going to do it in. Couldn't get out of its own way thanks to an automatic transmission and being completely bone stock. But yours truly, a fan of anything with two doors, red. I was all over that car like a cheap suit. So your car really stopped my heart for a minute, it did. And that's number seven, I think, that we've owned of Audi Coupes in total. <laughs> Between UR Quattros and the regular front wheel drives. So Don, since you went there, you're our resident DeLorean expert. You've got an 80s car in your fleet right now. Yeah, I have this little DeLorean. It's kind of the king of the 80s, in my opinion. There's a lot of cars out there quicker, a lot of cars faster, maybe even better looking. That's debatable. I disagree with all of you. But anyway, yeah, that would be my perfect 80s car. It helps a lot with clearing my sinuses up once in a while. You know, it helps a lot. So it's good stuff. Then I guess the only other 80s thing I might have, you guys be the judge, it's a 79 Caprice. And then there's a 79 Fiat. Both of them teeter. The Fiat, because it came from the 60s, really, that car started in 66, is a 124 Spider. But then you've got the Caprice, which started life really in 77 because it's a brick. It's one of the square Caprices. But it spanned the 80s all the way to 1990 until it was put out of production. So it was the choice of cops and cabbies everywhere. For the 80s. Yeah, I give you that. Don, I thought of you. I called my dad in preparation for this episode. And I... Somehow that sounds bad. I don't know. Well, no. I said, Dad, if you could buy any classic car from the 80s, what would you get? Immediately out of his mouth, DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've had a couple 80s cars yourself, right, Mark? Yeah, really just one worthwhile one. I had an 85 Porsche 911 Carrera. I had a ton of money put into it. I got it from someone who was in a bad spot in 2009 in the you know financial crisis. They were in the mortgage business. He had almost 60 grand in receipts and I bought it off him for 20,000. I put some money in it and I loved that car to death. I'm a damn fool for forever selling it. Well, Dan, did you pick a square body or you got something better? Well, are we talking about favorite of cars in my fleet from the 80s? Either what you own or what you've owned or what is your favorite of the 80s. Y'all know that I'm a sucker for my square body Chevy trucks. And I have one from almost every year of the 80s. But I would say of my trucks, I'd have to say my 82 is probably my favorite because when my brother was killed, he helped me build that one. And as you saw, I finally got that back up and running recently. So I'm super excited to be driving that again. But the problem is is it still drags the whole way out the driveway because how low it sits. But it sounds so good. It does. It does. She's pretty. Other than that, I would have to say my Grand Prix because I've owned that since I was in high school. Soon, the engine will be getting put back in her and she'll be back alive as well. I would say of my fleet, it's between those two of my favorites. So Bradley... You know, I I thought about your 37 different cars you've owned over your lifespan, and I think you just had a brief 
flirtation, just like a one night stand with an 80s car, a proper 80s car, didn't you? No. <laughs> I am completely out of my elements. I was looking back at my list of 250 cars I've owned in my lifetime, and not a one is an 80s car. Not an 81? Is that what you said? Oh, wait. Okay. okay. Now I know where you're going. I was going to say, I do not own or nor have I owned an 80s car, but that apparently is wrong. You just reminded me that for a brief twinkle in your eye, own an 81 Porsche 924 Turbo. 931 turbo can i take partial ownership of that since it resided here for a little while <laughs> that's the case and possession is nine tenths then i never owned the car because it either resided <laughs> at matt yip's house or your house in that case i never owned a porsche but i owned it long enough to join pca uh, yeah tags the title counts as ownership there you go yes a brief flirtation with that 924 turbo so there you go yes. ran when parked ran when parked, ran never, parked. <laughs> never ran again well, like I said before, we've had tons of cars from the 80s over the years and whatnot. My personal favorite was actually the car I drove in college. I was the second and fourth owner of this car. I had an 83 UR Quattro. They only brought 627 of those cars to the United States to begin with. And I was a stupid college kid that drove one every day. And people are like, what is that? With the jackknife fender flares that kind of set the E30, M3, the 944, the RX-7, all those cars of that era copied that style that everybody wanted those jackknife flares from the UR Quattros. I will say that like all the other 80s heroes that I've driven, like R5 Turbos and Camaros and things like that, you know, they sort of just don't live up to the hype. And we're going to talk more about homologation cars, I'm sure, as we go through this. You know, that's our trip down memory lane for the 80s. But like all what should I buy is we're here to shop and spend other people's money. So how do we do that? You all know the drill at this point. We've got these weird buckets of money that don't make much sense. So I think we're just going to ditch those all together because 80s cars have gotten pretty pricey. So that 50, 100, 150 is just whatever. But we got to put some limitations around what we're talking about. We've said before, we can't pick the obvious choices. 944 is out. 308 Ferrari is out. IROC Camaro is out. All that stuff is out the window. We got to find the oddballs. We got to find the fun cars for our collector. We also have to settle this debate about the body styles of these cars, because I think the 80s had one of the most diverse palettes in terms of body types to choose from. And we got to figure out what the hell is a liftback, a hatchback, a fastback, a sportback, a shooting brake, the station wagon. Like, what is the difference? Somebody explain it to me. I love arguing over the definition of a shooting brake. I think that is one of the best to ridiculous argument to get in. I mean, Mercedes calls their wagons shooting brakes in Europe. They don't even call them wagons or estates. They're just the Mercedes shooting brake. Have you ever looked at the definition of a shooting brake? I have a personal definition of a shooting brake, which is it's a hatchback with no C-pillar, right? If it's a hatchback with no C-pillar... It's a shooting brake. It's got the A pillar on the window. It's got the B pillar on the door. It's got no C pillar. And then obviously the D pillar because it's hatchback. Like that to me is a shooting brake. But isn't that a lift back then? Because a Scirocco is technically a lift back and not a hatchback. So if you want to get into the concave, convex nature of the hatch. But yeah, when it flattens out like that. I look at it as the angle of the body line itself. So for me, I think a wagon is a three box design with a D pillar. A hatchback is a shortened version of that, but the rear hatch is straight. It's 90 degrees. I think we can all agree on that. But the controversy comes into your point about the shooting brake, the lift back, the fast back. William mentioned the notch back. And then you have a car like Tanya's, a GT Coupe, 
which is technically not a hatchback, a liftback. It's got a funky little trunk, so it's considered a sports coupe, but so is a 944, which is a liftback, like a Corvette and a Camaro. So it gets really blurry really fast. Well, the notchback was just a sedan. It just had a trunk. But what's the other funky one with... That's the hatchback. That's the GT hatchback. So how is that? Or liftback. Yeah, I was going to say, right? When people talk about the notch, they talk about the sedan. It had a proper trunk. The rear glass did not lift. Well, isn't a sedan, isn't it four doors? No. Yeah, see, it gets... The 80s. Everybody was high on cocaine. <laughs> oh, man, right on. <laughs> so, so, but with the examples you're pointing out, they don't, like a Scirocco, I'm looking at these old Scirocco's. So it's like a 944, you know, it doesn't really have a D-pillar. It's just kind of moved forward and pulled down. A Scirocco, does there have to be some roundness on the back to make it a shooting brake? I don't know. But that's the beauty of this particular decade in automotive history is that there's so many different body styles to choose from. We've never had that type of proliferation again. We've actually consolidated down and there's less and less wagons today than there ever has been. Hatchbacks are sort of going away in lieu of SUVs, which are just giant hatchbacks on stilts and you know things like that. So we have a lot to choose from. It really depends on what you're into. And then obviously we can go pickup trucks, crucks, all that kind of stuff was also available at this time period. It's like a schmort board of different cars. So the question is, where do we take our prospective buyer? We only talking hatches. Oh, no, I just wanted to clear up an argument because one day oh. Brad and I at the office were going back and forth about is a Camaro a hatchback? And I'm like, no, that whole glass lifts up in the back, but it's not a hatchback. It's a liftback, just like a 944 is a liftback. When he says we got into an argument, it was because we were trying to iron out details for a spec race in, this uh, is in true. Forza. This is true. And we were trying to decide if we wanted to allow cars like the Camaros and the Mustangs in this spec race. The determination was no, because they're not hatchbacks, they're liftbacks. I guess the question is, though, is this going to be their only car? Is it just going to be a fun car? I mean, utilitarian aspect of it. I mean, they're going to have to use this for all their daily activities, or is this just going to be you know, something they can go have fun with? I think anybody that's buying an 80s car today is definitely buying it as a either showpiece or a tool around car. I don't think anybody's really buying an 80s car as a daily driver driver anymore you know not without considerable amounts of money talk to daniel well i love that you said eric about <laughs> the crux because on my list i've got the iconic dodge rampage oh my god oh, oh, yeah. in my head yeah. and i'm yes. telling you dodge rampage <laughs> is like the old crappy little brats that were so popular and i love the heck out of those things those are utilitarian, right? They are. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and remember too, Volkswagen had one too. The, yep. the caddy, Volkswagen. the rabbit. Yeah. What's cool about the Rampage was on my list of forgotten. I have a lot of Dodge on my list today. <laughs> <laughs> but, so Don, you know, as a, as a classic Chrysler nerd yourself, you know, we talk about the TC a lot, which is on the Q platform. We've talked in the past about the K cars, which started in the seventies and things like that. But the Rampage, although it looks like a K car is actually on the L chassis. It's like, its right. own beast but the right. parts are interchangeable with the omni and the shelby mm -hmm. which gives you this kind of little hot rod that you can build out of it which is pretty cool and that was my yeah. number one i'm glad that you went that way because the omni obviously there's one that had the shelby badge on it and that's you know something that's collectible now but my number one that i would want right now in that same category would be the late 80s dodge shelby charger with the manual turbo i had the uh the shelby dakota glhs and the charger on my list as well 
Is the Daytona Z in that list too, or is that just into the 90s? No, the Z was an 80s car. The Turbo Z came out in 84. That was their very first hot rod Daytona was the Turbo Z. And then you had the Chrysler Laser XE, I think was their version. And that car only lasted for two years and it went out of business and the Daytona took over. They had the Chrysler Conquest. Yep, Chrysler Conquest TSI. Which was the same as the Mitsubishi Sterion. Those were cool. That was the RX-7 competitor. It was 180 horsepower or something stock. If you guys love that car, I know a gentleman down in Virginia, up on his hill, he's got acres and acres of land, but he's got probably 120 of those cars just in various rusted out states. He's got a couple of the race cars that did in that little celebrity race series with those. He's just got them all over. If everyone's looking for one, let me know because I can set you up this guy because he's just got hundreds of them sitting out in the field just in various wow. stages of decay. I was shocked how cheap they were on Bring a Trailer. What are they going for? So like the GLHS, the last year of that Shelby Charger, they only made a thousand of them, sold for 12 grand like a couple months ago. The Chrysler CSX, which same drivetrain, they made their version of that under 10,000. The Omni GLHS, the collectible one, is still under 20, easy. Some transactions at 15 grand. And that was an over 200 horsepower car, too, which back then is like was a lot neck breaking. Yeah. Yeah. Front wheel drive and kind of insane. And lots of torque steer, too. It's beautiful. It's a good thing. Well, the partnership with Mitsubishi for the engines was what benefited them. Because if it wasn't for that, that car would have been crap if they would have used one of their off-the-shelf engines. Well, the best part is the base Omni was using a Rabbit engine. So they were also partnered with Volkswagen to develop that car. So it's sort of a weird marriage of three companies to make the Omni work. Yes, I spent a lot of time riding around in one in high school. Because my cousin had one. We beat the living hell out of that car. Before we go a little bit too far down the path and why I wanted to talk about the Daytona Z and and there was an IROC version of that and a bunch of other stuff later, you know, just like there was the IROC Camaro is how far into the 90s, Mark, are we allowed to take some of these cars? Because as we've argued before, some of the best 90s cars started in the 80s and some of the best 80s cars started in the 70s. Do we have a sort of grace year that we can cut off for this discussion? Just for clarification, I think one of the best 90s cars you could have bought in 2017. Are we talking about the Dodge Viper? <laughs> yes. <laughs> if it were entirely up to me, there would be a fair amount of leeway, right? Like, So for example, I would say a 1989 300ZX Turbo is obviously a 90s car, right? Just culturally identifies as a 90s car. Like a Corrado would or, or a Supra or something like that. Yeah. And like I would say it, a 964, for me, a 964 Porsche would be a 90s car, but came out in 89. But on the same side, it's like some great models were made towards the end in the early 90s, right? So you've, you know, you got your Shelby Fox body. We had the GT40 heads and everything. They made 91 through 93. There are definitely cars that kind of stretched out into the early 90s that I think identify as 80s cars, if I can keep leaning on that language. And so I would tend towards setting a cutoff around probably 93 as like the last model year. And that's when many of them transitioned to new body styles around the 93, 94 timeframe anyway. Yeah. At least don't think Yeah. For a lot of things. Should we continue to pull on this Dodge thread just for a moment longer? Don, do you want to talk about the Miranda? Is that that on your list of vehicles? You're not being arrested. (laughs) It's not the Miranda. It's the Murata. What? Or is it the Marauder? Marauder. No, it's the Murata, which was a Cordoba. Because remember, the Cordoba has the Corinthian leather. The Marauder (laughs) has vinyl. Terrible, terrible. Well, wonderful cars, as long as you didn't want to go, you know, anywhere, they were fine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
I'll tell you something. When you're broken down at the curb and you got prostitutes walking by you, you've got their attention. Trust me. They know that this is a classy car right here. So since we're pulling that Chrysler Plymouth Dodge thread still for a moment, I want to touch on something that I've mentioned before, which is the AMC Eagle 4x4. I still think that's an interesting choice. It's still in that weird period. They built that car into the 80s, even though it started in the 70s. But there's another car that is just kind of classically 80s. And Brad... What do we think about the Jeep Cherokee XJ? I've always loved the XJs. I think they're good. They're a great hatchback. (laughs) (laughs) The XJ is one of those things that if you're not a truck person, you could kind of go the other way, lower it, do some stuff. Blasphemer. No, no, never. No way. Why not? Why you could make a low rider Jeep. Lift it on 37s, take the doors off and send it. That's the only way those trucks live. It's the only way those hatchbacks live. Well, with that generation of Jeeps, they weren't really good until when they started putting the four liter in them in the late 80s. Yep. That's what we're talking about here. But I'm saying they made them earlier in the 80s, I believe, but it wasn't until later 80s when the four liter became the powertrain. And that four liter was bulletproof. Yep. So, Jeff, we're going to play the great Karnak here. Can you think where I'm going with the XJ? I'm wondering if you're going in the direction of something that's a little more rare, the Dodge Raider. Oh, no, I was going to go down the Comanche path. So, yeah, Dodge Raider being the, what was it, the copy of the Mitsubishi something or other. It looks like a little, an affordable version of a Defender almost. I love them. I like the Comanche because it's an XJ with a bed on it. And those are also super rare. They didn't make a ton of those either. And then you could slam it down on the ground on bags and stuff, Brad. I'm not going to lie. That would be cool. (laughs) (laughs) If we're going down this 4x4 SUV pickup ridiculousness road, I cannot watch the fall guy now without thinking of you, okay? I watch the fall (laughs) guy every night. There you are with that big truck, okay? Anyway, can we get off the Jeep thing for a minute or are we still on there? Sure, Okay, because I want to go someplace really, really weird. This thing popped in my head late at night during my insomnia attack. And when it came out, I thought, my God, this is the ugliest thing that's ever hit four wheels. But it was so ugly I fell in love with it. I had to have one someday. I just had to. And then I found out it was made in Italy and had a Ford drivetrain. And I thought, this is for me. This is perfect. Then I found out it was designed by Tom Sharda, who also designed my 124. And I thought, I've got to have this thing someday. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to bring up to the board for potential consideration, the La Forza. What is that? La Forza, the SUV for SUVs, for the people who are tired of Range Rovers and Jeeps with wood on the side. Wow, that is ugly. Jesus Christ, that is ugly. (laughs) I rock your world, do I not? You gotta love the the Wikipedia image, all the paints all jacked up, like they couldn't even find a good one for the image on Wikipedia. I'll tell you, growing up where I grew up, We had a dealership. It was a Porsche Audi dealer, and they took on the La Forza franchise. (laughs) I remember riding down there with my bike. They had four or five of them sitting there on the lot. And I think the saddest part about the whole thing was about a year later, they still had those same four or five. Oh, no. It was sad. Nobody was buying these cars. Cars and bids got them on here being ultra rare and rare. And what, 50 bucks? I mean, what do they want yeah. for these things? <laughs> Wait, ultra rare. It has a speed hump, though. Look, look, it has a power bulge on the bonnet. Oh, it does. It's like an yeah. eclipse. It does. Pack and wait. It can lay some pipe. Oh, that's terrible. Notice all the colors of the paint. That is awful. See in the back door, the front door, the hood, they're all different. Yeah. <laughs> 
is the kind of car I would buy to tow my Yugo around with. So since we're still talking about trucks, straight out of the Triassic period is the G-Wagon. You can't get any more, I don't know what decade that thing is. Can we bring that up in the 80s? Because that damn thing dates back to the 40s. Right? I mean, that you stretch back, that thing really goes back. It has not changed. They still make it the same way today. I know, I know. It's the same thing. But is it a 40s car? You can't buy the same one. The thing about the G-Wagon is it still screams 80s in the same way that like the Lincoln Mark 7 is the banker's hot rod, you know, the kind of thing. It's like it's got this certain stance about it that it is timeless, but it's also kind of at that height. It's got that like bourgeois about it that makes it 80s. That It just fits in with the rest of the landscape, right? You can't say that it's not. You wouldn't see a G-Wagon in an 80s movie. I mean, it's like, all right, cool. I, I think it fits. No, I think it works. I do. I, I don't know. I have trouble with it because it goes back to the 40s to me. That, that, yeah. That, yeah. You know, when I would test those at Motor Trend and I hated them. I did. I got to be honest. I hated those things because for me, the height and the width of me, when you sat in that truck, that was it. You were not going to slouch and get more comfortable. And I'm sorry, back when I worked for Motor Trend, I drove a lot of Lincolns. I was used to slouching all the time. So this whole upright position thing, which is great for certain German people, it didn't work for me. It just couldn't stand it. I couldn't get it out of my head that this thing just reaches all the way back to the 40s. It represents, you know, the war. And yet they still keep building the stupid yep. thing. And it is the worst thing in the world off-road. I don't care what anybody says. I'll put it to you this way. Never, ever did we get one of these cars at Motor Trend that did not have that stupid little yellow triangle with the inflammation mark in the middle? Every single Mercedes SUV. Doesn't matter if we're talking about the G-Wagon, the ML, any of them. They all had that stupid thing on there. We were always calling Mercedes. What is this about? What is this? Don't worry about that. Just, you know, just, just don't write about it. Don't mention it. <laughs> It's a brand new car. It has less than 300 miles on it. This thing is on, and we're not going to write about it. You sure you don't want to just send us another one to prove that, oh, I don't know, maybe you built one that the light doesn't come on? Sorry, you hit something here, I guess, because I'm getting pretty <laughs> emotional about this. I'd much rather talk about my La Forza. My La Forza is much better. So the La Forza, though, can anyone else look at that and not see a predecessor like the Isuzu Rodeo? Because I see that. Oh, yeah. It looks like a weird Isuzu Trooper. like No power bulge on a rodeo. Did Tom Sharda have anything to do with any of those Isuzus? Because Sharda designed that La Forza. I guess the understanding was he had to use a lot of existing parts to make it work. So it was sort of like putting together like a Lego set. From what? A, a Lada factory? I mean, that thing looks like it's out of the Eastern Bloc. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I remember those stupid things were like 50 grand. What? I mean, they were insane. They were cheap. No, and they were built on a Bronco chassis, which, wow. hey, I'm a resident Ford guy here, but I love Broncos. Come on, when I get a Bronco for 18000 why not just get the Bronco? I will say that, yes, the Mercedes is definitely an 80s vehicle, but it just reaches back to the 40s, and I just don't get it. I can't I comprehend it. it. Will it make you feel any better, Don, that I almost burnt one of them G-Wagons to the ground in Albania when I was down there? <laughs> Do you have video? I'd love to see video. No, I don't have video, unfortunately. All right. Draw me a picture someday. The battery broke loose and like fried all the wires on the hood and smoke just started going everywhere and it was epic. Oh, no, that's weird because a friend of mine literally just bought a brand new S, some big shot four-door $500,000 Mercedes. Driving home from the 
dealership, the battery exploded under the hood. That's what the bulge is for on the LaForza. Okay. <laughs> Ba-boom. <laughs> the room absorbs the blast. Don's not happy with the G-Wagon, but I have an alternative for you. I had a feeling you weren't going to like that as an option. But think about our, our perspective buyer. You want to buy something totally 80s. Maybe it looks like a matchbox car. Has off-road potential and you don't want to get into the jeep cult lift in and big tires and all that kind of stuff what about the suzuki samurai they're getting hard to find in decent shape if you don't have to go on the highway you're all right the geo tracker yes (laughs) yes jeff you hit it that is my dream suv i'm not kidding you Oh, I love the Geo. I was going to say, I raise you a Geo Tracker, but Jeff just blasted straight through it like a G Wagon. So Jeff is the G Wagon of the group. But yes, the Samurai is fun. Just don't turn quickly. Well, the same is true. The Trooper, right? Is that, remember the Motor Week test? We had to put the bars on yes. so it wouldn't roll over. Yes. You know, another one that liked doing that was the Bronco 2, which is absolute 80s. I don't think that thing made it to the 90s. I don't know. And those weird side windows. Yeah, the side windows go up into the roof yeah. a little bit yeah. kind of like the the land rovers yeah yeah they were terrible they love tipping over now i would love to have a suzuki though i would and i think they're very very 80s i had a friend who had a girlfriend who had one it was like a jungle gym on wheels you were always just a little terrified when that thing was going down the road no i loved it i thought it was great well don let me ask you this do you remember the suzuki x90 the yes. one that came later oh. yeah yes that was just more rounder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was more of a sedanish looking thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Is that the one you're talking about, Jeff? Yeah, but they touted it. They put pictures of it in front of big cat machines on the construction site. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. Yeah, that thing was goofy. There were a lot of goofy SUVs that came out at that time. I can't remember too many of them, but that Suzuki was one of them. It was, it was pretty weird. Bronco, too. That was almost the same chassis as the Rangers at that time. Right. I don't know what it was with the engines for were put in at that time, but like from the factory, they came with a pack to them. And it's like you'd start it up and it would sit there just tapping. And Ford was like, oh, that's normal. That's like the check engine light on a G Wagon, like, like Don was talking about. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I want to finish out this thought on trucks because then we can move on to really obscure stuff. Because I think trucks are an important part of the 80s. We all fell in love with the fall guy and the square bodies and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't want Dan to take us on a three hour tour <laughs> on the SS square body. There's two more that are on this list. And I'm glad Mark allowed me to walk into the 90s just a little bit. I hope I'm on the same wavelength as some people here. I'm thinking GMC Cyclone. Mm. Oh, there you go. The Cyclone and the Typhoon. Those were awesome. Feels 90s to me. It does. 91. It is. But culturally, it feels 90s. But it's an 80s S10, though. That's true. It's an 80s S10. I agree with Mark, though, because believe me, I was thinking about the Cyclone and the Typhoon, both of them. I love both of those vehicles. I resisted. I thought, no, I'm not going to bring this up because... It's a 90s car. To me, that thing kind of kicked off 90s performance. It really did. Because to come into the 90s, oh my God, they built this little pickup that will spank a Corvette with the right driver. That thing is mind-blowing. It really, really is. A great thing about it, it held the record for fastest truck for one of the longest spans. Well, up until recently, as a matter of fact. zero to 60 time was something like 25 years. Yeah. So I have one final one. This is how we get into obscure stuff. Does anybody know what the abbreviation R-E-P-U stands for? Mazda produced something called the Repu, which is the rotary engine pickup. 
So it's like a Mazda 2100 Ford Ranger, but rotary powered with the RX-7 13B in it. So that's kind of a neat thing. They do exist. You can import them from Japan. So if you want to do something really off the wall and have a kind of interesting pickup truck, I just think the Mazda Repu would be something really cool to look into. Are you pronouncing that right? Repu? Re- Repu? <laughs> Repu. <laughs> My repo got repoed. Yeah. Right? yeah. You know, the nice thing, too, about the rotary Mazda pickups, they do go back to the 70s. Breaking away from our 80s only discussion, that little pickup was around in the 70s with that rotary motor. If you're going to import one from Japan, you've got a big span to look for. But how many of those things survived, especially living in Japan? Yeah. I mean, that's a harsh, harsh environment for cars over there. That really is. If individuals look of the repo, they could also go for like the Toyotas of that generation because some of those small Toyota pickups had that similar look to them. Oh, the tacos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That 22RE and the 22R, those were fantastically powerful, high revving little four cylinders they love 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 to go the toyota were fantastic well the nice part about this time period and why i bring up a truck like the mazda is that we are outside that time limit we can really start looking at importing cars from japan and from europe that we weren't able to buy let's say 10 years ago right we're past that so now they're not even really gray market anymore you can just bring them in they're historic when they get here that kind of thing so it really opens up where the 90s they're still like on the verge of some really really cool cars being able to come over outside of like Nissan GTRs and stuff like that. So pretty much the palette is wide open here in mm-hmm. terms of what we can bring to the United States from the 80s, which is pretty slick. But one of those cars that was on my list, been a dream car of mine for a long, long time, the Renault Alpine GTA. It was on my Does list. anyone remember this car with the big headlights up front? Ugly ass headlights. The one that says, I'm better than you because I am French. It was on my list. It was on my list. Was it? Yeah. I've always loved those cars. You know, when I used to read those British magazines back in the day, there were sometimes full page ads for dealers over in England and France, and they would specialize in these cars. And I remember thinking, my God, that is the coolest looking car in the world. I just loved them. And they had a couple different variants. I don't remember what they were. I remember the GTA, though, fit in the 80s. The next one was more of a 90s car. That's why I stayed away from it. You have opened Pandora's box. You have crossed the threshold into my territory. We're talking about French cars now. Well, in that case, I'm going to do a filibuster all about TC all night long because it doesn't get better than TC. That is an obvious choice. We're not allowed to go there. Oh, no, it's been boycotted. If you're going to bring French cars into my generation, having driven one when I was stationed in England, one of my troops had picked up the 205 GTI from Bougia. Those were quick, powerful little cars and fun to drive. 1.9 liter, not the 1.6 liter. They had two. Correct. And Mark, you're right on the money. I just talked to one of my guys recently. He's trying to import a 205 Rally, which is the 1.6, which is the one nobody really wants. But it's still a heck of a lot of fun. It's, again, outside of that statute of limitations. And then you can hot rod it because it's a Peugeot. So why not? If you love that body style and you can't obviously afford a T16, why not go with the base model, right? The 8-valve GTI is just as fun as a 16-valve sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it was a surprising number of transactions on bring a trailer for those 205 GTIs. I was looking at them as well. 
And I think the last one, it was in good shape. It went for 14 grand for 1.9. And you don't have to deal with importing or bullshit like in the United States transaction, $14,000. That's not bad. I know there's one that Tanya and I appreciated from a really early episode. We did way back when, when we reviewed the movie Lost Bullet. And in that they featured a Renault 21. And if you don't know what that is, it's sort of like competitor to the Peugeot 405. Really neat looking sedan, sort of hopped up, does have a turbo 2.1 liter, all that kind of stuff. So that's a neat car. It's been on my radar for a while. In the United States, there's a Renault that people often forget about. I'm not talking about the Nakar, which definitely screams the 80s. Does anybody remember the Fuego? I love the Fuego. The Fuego is a wonderful yeah. car. It is another fine car to be broken down on the side of the road with. It is. The car is ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold back. Let us know how you really feel. Yes, but, and the reason the Fuego is an interesting candidate is the fact that it was used for a Renault spec series, an SCCA in the 80s, and Andy Pilgrim drove one of those cars. And you can actually still find some of those ex-Renault Cup cars, and they're all Renault Fuegos because they were sold here in the States. So it's kind of interesting if you want something that isn't completely mainstream, but was available stateside. Yeah, but the problem with that, and we've said this multiple times with other subjects, Cars from foreign countries that make it to the U.S. are normally their crap versions of cars. 100%. That's the great thing about this. Now we can start bringing their decent cars in without all the headache. One final French car. Okay. And this is the only time I will say this on the show ever about a Citroën. But I really like the BX. I think the BX is super cool. You know how I feel about French cars. I'm all over them. I think they're wonderful. I think they need to come here more frequently. It's like Citroën's attempt at making the Audi Coupe or the Scirocco. It's got that like boxy sportiness to it that's very 80s, but without the round headlight kind of feature of the BMWs. You need to specify that you're referring to the 4TC because the Citroen BX is a heinous wagon. You're absolutely right. It's true. The 4TC. For some reason, whenever I see cars like that have like that rear fender skirt type thing, it just makes me have flashbacks because the 80s versions of that looked ugly, but when they did it in the 50s and the 40s with the fender skirts, they looked good. Is this the car from Ronin that the 6.9 liter was chasing down? The brown 6.9 liter yeah. was chasing down a four-door Citroen, and they were duking it out. And I got to tell you, bullet be damned, that could have been the best car chase ever because you hear the throaty rumble of that 6.9 liter, and you hear that screaming high-pitched opera coming from the Citroen. Oh my God, they were both fantastic. But I don't know if that's the car you're talking about. No, the Citroen Xantia was in Ronin. That's the big car, yeah. He's talking about the Citroen BX4TC. Notice how the rear end of that car looks like the Chevy Bolt. You ever see that? I mean, with those gills in the C-pillar, it reminds me of the coupe in the UR Quattro. It's yes, got the same vents back there. Okay, yeah, it's ugly, but I can see it. It's a cool car just because it's so ugly. It's kind of like the La Forza. You know, they're so ugly, you just got to love them. And I got to give it to the French. They did a lot of hatchbacks. And because we didn't get a lot of French cars here, we tend to kind of forget that. Because you look at the R4 and the R5 and you look at all the Citroëns and the Peugeots. Every model almost came in a hatchback or liftback Mm -hmm. at that period. And then the wagon version. So they kind of like were the kings of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we relate to the GTI because that's what we got from Germany. And the Honda CVCC and stuff like that, the Civic and the CRX and all those. Yeah. But the French really just, they leaned into the hatchback scene hard. So when I think hot hatches, 
my brain goes there. Again, as a first-time collector, something to think about is maybe start looking at French cars. And you're not going to see very many of them no. at your next Cars and Coffee, that's for sure. It looks so good in black. It looked like shit in white, but in black. Oh, yeah, much better. Much better in black. I actually even like those wheels. They're so bizarre that they're awesome. Yeah. And again, I won't say that often about a Citroën. So we can come back from France. We can put our brie and our baguettes and our burgundy aside. What else have you guys got on your list? Because I, I do have some weird ones. Going a little bit to the left of the French, if I may, two Alphas. GTV6. That always won my heart back in the 80s. One I thought was horribly ugly growing up, but today I absolutely can't get enough of them. The Alpha GTV6 and uh, the sedan, the 164. The 164 is a really good looking car, especially oh, if you can deal with that two-tone thing that it has going yeah. on. Yeah, we, we had a guy back in, again, that dealer I told you about. They were the weirdest dealer, but they also sold Alfa Romeo. So we had a lot of Alphas in the town. And one of the guys got it and actually he got rid of that two-tone. He actually painted it all one color. So much better looking, so much better looking. But what I thought was funny was during that time, and here we go with the king of the 80s, I think, basically any Mercedes sedan from the 80s is going to be the king. But they too had that plastic body bottom and then this painted on the top. In the town I grew up in, all because of that one alpha all the Mercedes owners ran and they painted their bottoms to match their tops. They looked so much better. They really did. But yeah, the GTV and the 164, I just thought they were fantastic cars. And like you're saying, you know, they were plentiful back in the day, but today, not so much. You show up to a Cars and Coffee, you show up to any car show, it's going to be kind of the oddball of the bunch. Not as weird as a French car, but it'd be up there. Well, if we're going obscure, one on my list that was really obscure that I found actually recently was a Ford Mustang McLaren M81. Kind of one of those homologations that I think they only made like 10 or 15 of them. They were road legal. It was kind of to showcase the race team. Those flares are really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was almost like the start of the wide body almost. Right. Before right. the wide body got popular. Yeah, and if you remember, Jeff, building on that car, and it's on my list here, sprang the ASC McLaren Capri. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. And then just a little later, because the Capri was not selling very well, Ford slid it over to Mustang, and it became the ASC McLaren Mustang. That sold much better, three years that they had it as Mustang, and two that they had it for Capri. But those two cars, they sprang from that car that you're talking about. That was the father of these cars that I had on my list. Because the Capri... The RS was basically like a hatchback Mustang, right? Exactly. They were the same yeah. car. Just One had a domey glass a hatchback. That was the yeah. three, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and a blunted front end. It was a very blunt front end, whereas the Mustangs kind of leaned a little bit. It had a little bit of a rake to it. Same car. Yeah, no, that's a good pick. That really is. My list is kind of organized here. That's how crazy Swedish I got about it. But <laughs> where I have the ASC McLaren that you brought up, Right below that, if you remember in the 80s, Eldorado, Toronado, and Riviera yeah. were all offered in a converted convertible. They were done by ASC. Now, the Cadillac, there were 200 of them that were actually built by Cadillac. And for some reason, Cadillac turned it back over to ASC. They didn't want to do it. Those are really fun. Now, right below that, you've got the Elante, the Riata, the TC. Where I'm going with this, your ASC McLaren the Eldorado Toronado Riviera Convertible, the TC, the Elante, or the Riata. Those are all fantastically cheap for yeah. what you're getting. The Elante and the TC are going up in value the quickest from what I can tell. The ASC McLaren Capri 
are stupid cheap for what you're getting. Really? The Mustang is worth a lot more. If you're just starting out and you want some odd, weird car that's actually kind of easy to get a hold of and extremely easy to service, you're not going to go wrong with any of those cars. You're really not. And this is a really cool pick that Jeff has brought up about this M81 Mustang. And obviously that's going to be what people want, especially if you're in the Mustang community, the people that know about it, it's got that particular orange color, all that kind of stuff. But that Capri version, what's really neat about that is it harkens back to the Trans Am days and Lynn St. James drove a Trans Am Capri. So if you wanted to deck it out and go back to the 80s, you could make a replica of her Ford Motorsport Capri, right? Stuff like that. With those flares and that white, it really is aggressive. That's a cool car. I mean, I I hate to say, I almost like it better than the regular Fox body. Although you could probably take a Fox body and build one of these if somebody makes the flare kit and all the parts. That's what I was going to get at too, is actually they do. You can still get all the flare kit. You can get the interior, which had Recaro seats. You know, these were two-seat cars, the convertibles. I don't know about the M81. I'm assuming that was a two-seater car because it was a racing car. You know, these convertibles I'm talking about, they were a little more relaxed. They were a little more for the boulevard. You know, they were a Mustang. They could move, but they were converted to be more like the SL. So you have the two seats and then that little package area behind the two seats. They were full convertible. They had beautiful carpet, the Recaro seats. They were upgraded in a lot of different ways. The damnedest thing to me, again, the TC and the Elante of this genre are the ones going up in value the fastest out of all of them. And yet they built a lot fewer McLaren ASC cars yeah. than either, the, especially the Elante. They built quite a few of those. But the TC, they only built roughly 7,000 of them. What? What did they build? I mean, I just saw the sheet because I was looking at it. It was low. I want to say 2,000 is all that was built of the Mustang. And then the Capri was even lower than that because even though it was in production, it just didn't sell well. You know, Jeff, you hit a winner there. You really did. And I never thought about bringing the M81 into it because that was just too extreme for me. But yeah, that is a kick butt car. Technically, the M81 was from 1981. Yes. Oh. And if you look at the style, it really is built off that kind of 70s Mustang. It's kind of crazy to think they're charging 25 grand with inflation in 2023, something like $90,000 for a car with 135 horsepower. Oh, that hurts. (laughs) That hurts. But it was the 80s. It was all about flash, pizzazz, style. Look at the Trans Am. Seriously, it just gets no flashier, no better than a Trans Am of those days. The GTAs, those, oh, perfect cars. All right, right, Knight Rider. All right, Michael Knight. Chill out there a second. (laughs) Again, the cars were superheroes then too. What you saw on TV, like, can you name a show that didn't have a chase scene or the hero or heroine drove some sort of car that you wanted? It was like a Mm -hmm. rolling advertisement every week between Magnum and Fall Guy and MacGyver and Falcon Crest and, you know, Heart to Heart and all. There was, oh, geez, the list goes on and on and on on these shows. Well, the E-Team made me want a Corvette. I mean, I always fancied myself as face because I had the blonde hair and I just had to have team that. makes you want to buy a Vandora van. Come on now. Oh, yeah. Oh, that too. I want them both. I'm greedy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm a child of the 80s. I want it all. And it's all about me. But you talked about sophistication and all this kind of stuff. And there's a, another car that was featured in the show every week. And kind of to go back to Magnum PI for a second, Higgins drove an Audi 5000. And a 4,000. The big one, the 5,000 was always like their test bed. We're going to put the most experimental stuff we can come up with in this land yacht and then subject it to the people. And if it breaks, then we'll figure out how to fix it from there. That, you know, it's kind of Audi's thing back then. But the 5,000 
is sort of underappreciated. And what's cool about the 5,000, which became the 200 later and things like that is a V8 fits in there. Just want to let you all know. It was used in Trans Am and in Touring Car and DTM and all that kind of stuff. The 5,000 can be turned into a beast if you want to build a hot rod. But if you want a nice, luxurious and most aerodynamic car of the 80s, the 5000 is an interesting choice. And since you're a wagon guy, Eric, I was just looking it up. They actually came in wagons. Yeah, the 200 Avant, dude, it's like a unicorn for me. That's the top. Wasn't the 5000 also available as a wagon? Yeah. Yes, there was. Yeah. There was. But the yeah, 200 the two hundred is what you want because you get the bigger motor and the turbo and yeah. all the fun that, stuff. That was the one. My mom was actually interested in the Audi 5000 wagon. I remember that. And that, that was a terrible day in my family's history because my dad and his anti-foreign cars all that stuff. And we went, me and my mom alone, secretive, my dad couldn't hear about this. We went to drive the Audi 5000 wagon. And I'll never forget the look on my mom's face. She drove it around the block and put it right back on the dealer lot and thanked the salesman. And we were leaving. And I thought, okay, I don't know what that's all about. So we get in our car, which was a 78 Ford Country Squire LTD boat. And so I asked her, well, what do you think? What do you think? You know, I'm all excited. I'm hoping she's going to buy a new car, you know? And she said, that was the most dreadful car I've ever driven in my life. I said, you're kidding me, but Uncle Howard, he goes, yeah, I don't know how Uncle Howard tolerates those pieces of junk. I really don't. Wow. But I said, what was wrong with it? <laughs> well, it was terribly slow. It drove really nicely, but, you know, the window and then that back end, the way the rear rakes in like that, you lose all that cubic footage and the headroom and your father with his height and there's no way it's going to work out and blah, blah, blah. I was blown away how badly she hated that car. I just, mm. sorry. Well, you know what she needed instead was a Nissan Pulsar NX. Yeah. That uh, was a cool car. Uh, yeah. The Inspector Gadget car, right? Yeah. You could take off that rear end and have the little hatchback or put it back and you've got a wagon. And no, those were oh. fantastic little cars. I never understood that car. If I can really go... Boldly, where only the stupidest ever go. I'd like to go there now. Join me. You're going to Britain? No, Germany. Oh, okay. Because there are certain cars that came from Germany in the 1980s that defined the 1980s. And I'm talking Crockett and Tubbs shook them down every week. The drug lord with their AMGs, their Gambalas, their Lorenzers, their Sbarros, and their Trasco Mercedes-Benz. I'm glad you brought that up because I know we talked to Mark about the 500E, which was the Porsche collaboration for Mercedes, but I found a little gem that predates. It's a 90s car. Yeah, but I found an 80s version of it that predates it. Called the Hammer? Yes! <laughs> the Hammer was the AMG version. That was the beginning of it all, the Hammer. That thing was incredible. I would go so far as to say any AMG car from the 80s is the balls. Oh, yeah. Pre-acquisition, they're all very low volume. I don't care what AMG you have from that era. And even the Alpina BMWs, they were much more sport. And everybody thinks of the B7, which in my opinion kind of ruined the Alpina brand. But if you go back to the 80s and 90s, they made some cool stuff. If you get like a B6 E30 BMW Alpina B6, like that is a very cool car. Any AMG from the 80s is a very cool car. Going through the roof price-wise now, those AMGs from the 80s, I mean, they're just getting obscene in value. Crazy money. Yeah, I mean, if you remember back in the day, not too long ago, you could buy those. There was one in Palm Springs. Used to drive me crazy on the way into or out of town by the Welcome Center, which used to be an old gas station. And the guy was a Mercedes guy. He had 
a 380SL or a 450SL AMG. And it was the real deal. It was all black, had the hard top still on it, had this black interior, decked out dashboard. It was incredible. You know, when I was pumping gas, I went over just to look at it. And one thing that really got my attention, you know, you think to yourself, oh my God, look at this ridiculous thing. It's a blacked out SL, how ugly. When you get close to those things and you start looking at the details that they use to make those cars, for example, that blackout treatment, it's not all gloss black. If you look at the grill treatment, if you look at the little Mercedes emblem, you look at all that, it's actually more of a matte finish. It's kind of a satin finish. Yeah. They differentiated how they were going to black out that car. And then when you look on the inside, people say they're white. They're actually a light, light silver color material on the gauges that set it apart. You had your Alpine stereo system. You had all this crazy stuff. They were really highly detailed. But then, of course, you had the handling suspension. And if you could get them to modify the engine, you had all that much more. They were something else. But my point is, I remember that guy at the Shell station. He wasn't selling, wasn't selling, wasn't selling. And then finally, one day, he said, yeah, he was interested in selling. He said, well, how much do you want for it? Yeah, five grand. Yeah. So, okay, what, what's wrong with it? He goes, well, you got to rebuild the engine. You got to rebuild the transmission. You got to rebuild everything. And because it's not straight Mercedes, you got to find a specialist who can rebuild an AMG. They're thinking, oh, so that's where the money is going to go on that car. You know, now it's gone. Somebody did buy it. It's worth it now. It wasn't worth it then. The market value will pay for the repair. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's a really good question because, William, you do deal in Mercedes as well. So I'm wondering, Don left one of the tuners off the list, and that's Brabus. And at that time, Mm -hmm. Brabus was a big deal in the Mercedes community. So if you look at the market value there, would you rather have an early AMG or a Brabus from that period? Maybe take the AMG. Quality-wise, build-wise, AMG was a step above Brabus. I think Brabus was more aesthetics, really, than the kind of like motor net. So I mean, not saying it was a bad car, but I would steer someone towards AMG. Now, Brabus is obviously going to have a little more rarity to it than AMG because there weren't so many. Yeah, I'd steer towards AMG for Brabus. You can't go wrong with either of them. It just depends on your taste. You know, they were, I would say, two distinct ways of approaching it to doing those cars. But I'd say AMG all day long. And the rarity thing is relative. Like the AMG volumes from that time were really, really low, right? Oh, yeah. You're talking hundreds or thousands for those models. And many of them are under a thousand. Yeah, I mean, you could be in single digit production on some of those. A lot of them are only double digit. I mean, some are only a couple hundred. That was where it was taking them weeks to build a car. It wasn't like they were cranking these things out by the day. Took their time building those things correctly. So there, yeah, the volume you know, was very low. Kind of going back, like Don's saying, about the guys saying, well, okay, it's only five grand. Oh, well, you're going to have to go to the motor, transmission, and stuff. A lot of those cars, they weren't taken care of. They were at first. Then they used Mercedes that you know had a kit, so people didn't take care of it. It drove into the ground. No one would take care of them. It got to the point, well, I'm not going to put in 15, 20 grand into a car that's only worth five grand. So they just let them rot. It's worth it now, but... And here's a case in point. There was a company, they actually changed the trunk lid emblem, you know, it's say 500 SEL, and they changed it to 1000 SEL. Mercedes asked them politely, stop using our SEL logo. So they used 1000 and it was the initials of the guy who owned the company. I think that's what that was. And these 1000 SELs, you got to think, we're talking 1983, 1985, somewhere in there. They were $250,000 to start. This is crazy money. And that's why only the people who could afford them were the sheiks and the drug lords. To what you're saying, William, I've got a friend who collects these cars and one of them, a tragic story, it broke my heart. He gets a call. There's a man in Beverly Hills. He just bought a house. They're going to tear it down and build a whole new house. But in the garage, there's this stupid, freaked out looking 
80s Mercedes. Do you want it? And he says, well, yeah, yeah, I, I want it. I want it. Well, he couldn't get it. The state made him junk it. And it was one of these 1000 SELs. So they gutted it. He went over there with his team. He took everything he could off that car, paid the junk man for it, just in case he could get the state to change its mind and say, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll give it a salvage title and you can put it back on the street. They never did. The car ended up going to the junkyard, but he still has all those parts. But these cars had literally gold-plated interiors. Mm -hmm. The leathers were completely switched out from what Mercedes used, and they were totally changed up. You had a TV, and you remember back then, they didn't have the flat screens that we do today. They had these big tube-driven with glass front ends, but they were positioned right between the driver's seat and the passenger seat, so the rear passengers could watch TV. They had two phones in some cases. I mean, it just went on and on and on. Literally, the sky was the limit. And then the company... And I forget if it was Barrow or Trasco, one of the two took the SEC Mercedes and they turned them into gull wings. And those were the ones to have. Those were the cars that were just mind-blowing because what's more mind-blowing than a gull wing door? I mean, yeah, okay, that's coming from the DeLorean guy here. But <laughs> seriously, when you put a 500 SEC out there and you've got gull wing door, believe me, you are going to let everybody know you are the last one. Next up, Don tries to sell us all a Brickland. <laughs> We'll just put a pin in that with these going doors for a moment, shall we? I like this topic because they're an American version of this, right? So we've talked about Alpino, we've talked about you know AMG and Pravis, and let's just say we talked about roof and move on. We all acknowledge Bringer Trailers, the easiest thing to search by price because they actually give you good statistics. It's also the high, probably the most overpriced market. But you can get some really cool C4 Callaway twin turbo Corvettes. The sledgehammer. Yeah. 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 I mean, okay. So the actual car and driver car that did the 255 miles per hour sold for 500 grand on Bringer Trailer. But the other Callaway Corvettes sell for like 50 grand. And that's kind of a pretty damn cool car for 50 grand. It's still crazy fast and very tunable, very well set up. If you don't want a Callaway, you can get a Lincoln Felter. There's like a bunch of different options. I mean, the 80s, I was thinking about it. There are so many names that pop into my head in terms of tuners or body kit manufacturers. You start looking at Zender and Rieger and Camay. And I mean, it's the list goes Celine on. and Roche and all these really cool games. On and on and on. And it's like, everything was like bespoke in the 80s in a weird way. It was like, what are we doing here? I want to roll this back because we're still talking about Mercedes. And I know there's one that Tanya and I have talked about quite a bit. And I'm going to take this back to Magnum PI, hence the whole get up this evening. It's the 280 SL. Rick drove one of those on Magnum. It's like this timeless Mercedes. It's understated, but classy, but also not super expensive like an AMG. He actually had a 380. Tell me the difference other than the motor. It's all the same body, right? Uh, the 280 SL, that was a whole different car. That was, you're going back to 1971 with that car. I mean, unless there's something in Germany I don't know about. But to your point, though, and this is where I'll take your 380 SL. I was always a fan of the 380 SL. Raised in the 80s, Matt Houston drove one. The Hearts had one. That was the car to have. The beautiful thing about the 380 is its engine. Now, everyone's going to laugh at me and say, oh, Don, you don't know anything about cars because that was the weakest of the SLs ever, except for, you know, the six-cylinder cars. The 450 SL could clobber it. A 560 SL, please, light years ahead of its time. The 380 was sort of the little kid who, you know, it's the ugly stepsister that everybody kind of overlooks. That today... 
for someone buying a first classic collectible car could be your strong point. You can get in a manual too. Yeah, it's really rare that Mercedes had a manual and I think it's one of the few, like a 190E. Anyway, my point is because everyone poo-poos the engine and rightfully so, I get that, the values are really, really cheap. Now hear me out. Think of Ferrari, Porsche. They always tend to lead the pack on this. Well, I, I really want an 89 911. I really want an 89. It's got to be the turbo. Got to get the turbo. Well, all of a sudden, everybody had the same thought. So they all started buying them. So the value started going up. So next thing you know, all I can do is afford a 911 SC. Oh my God, I got to get my SC. I got to get my SC. The next thing you know, the 911 SC is a $60,000 car and I can't afford it. So now I'm looking at what? I think these SLs are going to do the same thing. Your 450s and certainly your 560s are stratospheric at this point. I think the 380 is your safe bet. You're going to grab one of those and they will go up in value because everybody wants that body style. It gets to a point, the engine and the performance don't really matter after a while. People just want the look. They want the enjoyment. They want all that stuff. I think you'd pick a really, really good winner by going with a 380 SL. If, of course, you don't want a TC. No. What can I say? You know, obviously, yeah, the 380 on the bottom end of it, but the one that I kind of like to step up, but it's going to the 450 SLC. You get the yes. coupe. That's a great car. It's a hard top. I mean, it's a gorgeous looking car. I mean, I really like those myself. I think it's great. And you know, William, back when the SLCs were new, that was Mercedes's most expensive model. That was that SLC. That was the most premium car that you could get from Mercedes. And today, they're dirt cheap. Oh, yeah. I think they're sharp. That one almost probably didn't have a manual on those, but do an engine swap, do a transmission swap. I mean, it's a fun, sporty car. It's, you know, it's small, it's tight, you know, but I don't know, I dig, I think they're great. Well, a big thing to Don's point is people looking to buy these cars, it's not always about the performance aspect of it. It's more of like the nostalgia because it's the memories of those times and it doesn't have to be the fastest, sportiest car. A big thing for any car buyers getting up in their 40s and older, a lot of these cars... We couldn't afford as kids what we saw them. So, you know, you saw them on TV shows and stuff. You could have never dreamed as a kid of owning it. Now it is a possibility. That's why the performance isn't what matters. You know, Tanya has one right behind her. And okay, Tanya, all fairness, I don't know what's been done to your car. It's probably freaked out to hell in high water. But like I was saying about Uncle Howard's Audi, it couldn't get out of its own way. It really, really couldn't. But man, I loved looking at that car. I did. And I actually liked driving that car. It was just a nice car to cruise around in. Yeah, look at the Ferrari 308. In its day, damn nice performer. Really nice performer. But it was just five, six years later, the Corvette could run circles around it. And that's just it. The 80s was weird because if you were making 200 horse, you were like a god. And then it was like the Porsche had 225, right? You're like, oh. And then, yeah, Corvette comes out of left field with like 300 and change and the ZR1 and all that stuff. And you're like, 300 now. Dude, your grandma's Camry has 300 horsepower in it. It's freaking nuts. To Dan's point, but the VR6 was around since the late 80s when it was developed. The VR6 made 172 horsepower. It was a hot rod in the Corrado when it came out. That's all you need. I can merge with no problem with 125 horsepower. You know what I mean? It's like why Miatas are fun. They make a whopping like 102 wheel horsepower. They just give you so much feedback. They're so analog. And I think that's 
what's cool about 80s cars is like we talked about in the intro, there's a lot of really whiz bang electronics because we were embracing the second space age, but the cars didn't have any nannies. They didn't have any assists, could still get a manual transmission. They were Farfignugan, right? The whole campaign and the, the joy of driving. That's what I look forward to every time I get into, you know, a Mark II GTI or I get into an old Ferrari or Porsche or whatever it is. It's just, it brings me back to when driving was driving. You can't be talking on your cell phone and ordering DoorDash, going down the road. You got to drive. Well, and yeah, you really do. And you hit that 200 horsepower mark. And isn't it funny that Corvette, if I remember correctly, the, even the 82 Corvette was still, I think, at 190 or was it at 210? Had it broken 200 at that point? That was like breaking the stratosphere, getting to those numbers. Not even close in 82, right? I think it was 180, 170. It said 200 horsepower at 4,200 RPM. In Out of how many liters, Dan? The 350 at that time was a standard engine, had 200 horsepower at 4,200 RPM. And is that the Crossfire? or is that the standard four barrel do we know that would have probably in 82 that was the first year for the crossfire the cross failure (laughs) they were only failures if you messed with them (laughs) who didn't or drove them them. or drove yeah i was gonna say (laughs) well yeah that's up to you in the warranty if you're gonna drive it if you turned them on they had maintenance issues just don't turn them on then there's the opposite of all this obviously like you're saying eric the 80s was iconic for style and the right smell of a car and the feel of it. But towards the late 80s, one of the last on my list is something that's a sleeper. It's the exact opposite. It's kind of ugly. Four-door sedan, 89 Dodge Spirit RT. Oh, Man, you just lit up, Don. Here we go. 229 horsepower did the quarter mile in 14 and a half seconds. It was the fastest four-door in the entire country, and nobody knew it. So that made that cool. Yeah, and the funny thing about that car, Dodge tried to promote it. They tried to sell it. They tried to get it out there. And who was its number one enemy? The Taurus SHO. And for some reason, everybody loved the SHO, but not so much the Spirit. And yet the Spirit was a hair quicker, a hair faster. Well, and the Ford Escort also had that, the RS Turbo something or other. The Kazi, yeah. That was a four-door too. That I mean, it looked exactly like the regular four-door Escort, but it would blow your doors off. Princess Diana drove one of those, by the way. I did not yes. know that. Cool. She had a black one. It's awesome. Yeah, just full plate, 80 grand yep. at an auction. Yeah, and yeah. everybody goes crazy over the RS Kazi hatchback, liftback, whatever you want to call it, the homologated car. But that little yeah. sedan that Jeff is talking about, that's a hot ticket item. And you can get those from England now. Nobody wanted them. But if you want to get a little weirder, Jeff, walk with me into the weird Hall of Fame. Oh, no. Here we go. 88 Nova Twin Cam. That's where he's going now because we have to have something from GM in there. No, no. It's another <laughs> Chrysler. It's another Chrysler, okay? The LeBaron GTS. Oh, I remember those. I haven't even heard of that. And that, my friend, was a hatchback and a four-door, so it fits right in with this whole hot hatch thing. Wasn't that the same as the Lancer or whatever they had come out with, which was the plain Jane version? Yeah, I think they shared a lot of the same body. Yeah, we're talking 1984-ish, 85-ish. Chrysler had the GTS, and it was this little hatchback, 2.2 liter, you know, the four-cylinder turbo, like everything on a K-car chassis. It was really, really amazing to watch this car, 0 to 60, quarter mile, top end, hanging on to Crown Victorias, hanging on to Caprices, hanging on to the Grand Furies, all those cars, and yet it's doing it with 
28 miles to the gallon. Especially if John Voigt was driving it. Ah, there there we go. Go. There John we go. Voigt, baby. Do we have any Seinfeld fans in the house? <laughs> yes, right here. I know exactly what you're talking about. And the funny thing, it's not really a hatch. It's like the original Audi A7 or something. Is it actually a trunk? I'd never heard of it. I'm just looking at the pictures. It's got that kind of stretched, kind of lift back slash hatch type. It's the Lancer body. They shared that and they called it a LeBaron and they beefed it up. I remember as a little kid, and I think Tanya was a little too young to remember, but we actually went to the local Dodge dealer. He went and test drove a Lancer. At the time, they were looking for a car for my mom or whatever, and he came back and he hated it so much. And I don't know what possessed the salesman. And I'll never forget this. He put my dad in a minivan. The Chrysler minivan was a big deal at the time. I had Coca's thing, right? And my dad was like, get me the F out of this. And we went straight to the Volkswagen dealership and then bought the gray Scirocco that we had like forever. I remember such a vivid thing because my dad was so like explicitly upset about being put into a minivan. It was just like, no way, no how, right? Well, you know, going on the four-door hatch, one car I've always wanted, and you'll be happy, Eric, it's not a Chrysler product, nowhere near it. Oh, Lord. The Sterling 827. Oh! And there was the 825 and the 825SL. There was a bunch of ones that came here to the States that everybody forgot about. I like that because it's the British... Accord. It's literally a Honda that they rebadged as a Sterling. I remember seeing those running around as a kid. They were neat. They were different. As one owner put it to me, everything Honda lasted forever. Everything Sterling fell apart. The one thing I will give the Sterling credit for is ushering in the Integra and the Legend. Because it opened the door for Acura. Once Sterling sort of failed here in the United States, then you notice right after that Acura showed up and everybody's like, wait, wait, what is this? What's what's this thing? I thought they both came over right around 87. And I think that's part of what killed the Sterling was Acura sales were so much higher yeah. than Sterling. Thought that was how it went down. But yeah, customers like the one I'm talking about who praised everything Honda or Acura and then poo-pooed everything Sterling. As a regular consumer, you're thinking to yourself, okay, so the message here is just go buy the Honda and get it over with or go buy yeah. the Acura and get it over with. It's a quality car. But yeah, and, and even that, I mean, if we're going to go down that direction, the Legend or the uh, Integra, either one of those cars would be fantastic. What should I buy candidates? And one of them is a hatchback. And in that same realm, the original Eagle Talon. You know, since we yes. talked about the Conquest early on, that was another early all-wheel drive production car. And yeah. they were hot turbo, you know, shared with the rest of the Chrysler platform and all that. They're neat cars. The later generation Eclipse Eagles are a lot nicer, but those early ones are still kind of cool. And when you see one, you're like, as long as it's not a Plymouth Laser, you're just like, oh, that's really neat, you know? Yeah, we had a friend who owned a Honda dealer. So, of course, everybody in the family, except the mother who drove a Mercedes, everybody else drove a Honda. And I remember his daughter was my sister's best friend. They're still best friend. And they had a cabin up in a place called Big Bear, which is up in the Southern California mountains. And the road up there, there's two main roads to get up there. And one of them is just kind of a switchback, back and forth and back and forth. It's really annoying. The other one is the old, more curvy road. That one's a lot more fun. And I remember her going up there one weekend. She had a five liter on her butt. She said it was so close that in my mirror, I could barely see the tops of the windshield wipers. So that's how close these guys were. And so she just kept pushing the little Honda, pushing, pushing, pushing. And she said it was kind of funny because 
you'd hit those curves and the Mustang would really back off. But the Honda, no problem. It just charged right through it. The Mustang had to back off a little bit and then regain ground on the straightaway. Typical David and Goliath situation. But that's another great one, the Honda Prelude. If you can find one from the 80s, it hasn't been completely trashed. The Honda Prelude was a really, really nice steering car. Yeah, they had those steering, yeah. Now, I found one of those, and I don't remember where, but it was gorgeous. It was a four-wheel steering, five-speed, red, black interior, SI, absolutely gorgeous. And yeah, it went for 60 grand. That's insane. Obviously, there is some eyes open to look for these cars, but like we were all saying, do you really need the high performance? Do you really need the hot? Find one that's just clean. Find one that's been preserved. Go preserve it some more and enjoy it. Again, show up to Cars and Coffee in a Honda Prelude. I can almost guarantee you will be the only one there. One thing that was big about the 80s, like you mentioned, like they had options like four-wheel steering. Like the 80s, I think, was a time when they were trying to push boundaries with technology and concepts and stuff. A lot of what we do is what should I buy? But I'm going to throw out one of what you shouldn't buy. During the 80s, the Cadillac had the 4.1 liter V8 in their cars that at that time had the cylinder deactivation, which when you mentioned Honda, that was one of the things probably like five, 10 years ago, Honda was promoting this variable cylinders type stuff thing. Like it was something new. I'm like, Cadillac did that back in the 80s. And it was horrible because the computer technology just wasn't efficient at that time. And I worked on one, but it was like in so many of their different cars they had. My thing is, if someone were to buy one of those cars, I would say yank that crap out of it and just throw naturally aspirators on there. Yeah. It was a nightmare to deal with and trying to fix it. I spent weeks trying to get one fixed one time. And when I finally got it running, it still didn't run as good as it should. My BMW does that now just all by itself. That's a story for another day. (laughs) Four at a time, though. You know, the 468 was bad when Cadillac themselves ditched it. And they thought, we're not going back to this. And what did they bring out after that? The 4.5 liter, I think, was after that. And then after that was a 4.9 liter. And then after that was a 4.6 liter, which was the North Star. I'll tell you, I got a buddy who is to Elante, or actually Cadillac, what I am to Chrysler TC. He just loves these cars. And what he's always told me is, yeah, the North Star is the sexy sister, but she has more mental problems than you can shake a stick at. She said, really, the one you want to do is get that 4.9 liter. He said that 4.9 liter is absolutely bulletproof. But the 4.6 is almost as bad as your 4.1. And I've met a lot of North Star guys and they swear by these things. But they also tell me that we yeah, when they break, bring your wallet because it's going to put your BMW to shame. I want to go back to the Honda conversation for a second because there's some interesting splinters here, especially because you started with Sterling and we didn't go down Mercurex or Ford Ti, Ford Sierra Cosworth, that whole thing, which I find those cars fascinating. And you can do V8 swaps on them and all sorts of fun stuff there too. And the Sierra chassis is great. Is there anything you can't do a V8 swap on? LS swap the world, my man. And if you can't LS swap it, jam a VR6 in it. That's the answer. (laughs) But you talked about Honda and the obvious choice is a CRX, but that's the obvious choice. So where my mind goes from there and William hit on it, he said the 323 GLC, which a buddy of mine had a Mazda 323. And obviously the king of them was the GTX, the all wheel drive. Those things are super cool. They're super rare, all that, but you can import them now from Japan if you want, right? We have all these options, but it takes me down another road. It takes me down the road of Toyota. 
and we can begin to talk about the Starlet. We can talk about the Corolla FX16. We can talk about even the second generation MR2, which came out in 87, not here in the US, but it started coming out in 87, even though it's a quintessentially 90s vehicle, but the MR2 is in this camp. There's a lot of really interesting things from Toyota that I think get overlooked. Everything from Toyota in the 80s was better than Honda, just like today, everything from Toyota is better than Honda. Oh, wow, man. Oh, slay. <laughs> you had the Corolla GTS, you had the AE86, you had the MR2, you had the nine other things you just listed. And what did Honda have? T-Rex and the Prelude and a Civic? Woo! The Civic wasn't that great, yeah. The Integra. They had the Celica. That's true. And the Celica Supra. Yep. There's a lot in that Toyota camp to look at. And for the longest time, Toyota got boring and there was nothing that was interesting. And now they're interesting again. They seem to flip-flop with Honda, where Honda got interesting and now Honda's boring. <laughs> And there's also some really cool Toyota vans that you can import from Japan right now, like the Hi-Ace, the Hilux on the pickup side. There's a lot of really neat stuff in Toyota. And remember, Toyota reliability. They're not burning the world down in terms of performance, but a Toyota from the 80s, I'd hop in and drive it tomorrow. No issues. Let's not forget the Toyota pickup from Back to the Future. That thing is sick. It's still awesome to this day. I hate to say it, but being a Toyota pickup guy myself, I almost, almost would rather have that than the DeLorean. That's how much I like that truck. That truck is all, I think the Roman votes, it's all thumbs up on that truck. That thing, those oh, things yeah. are still it's awesome perfect. today. 22 RE, four wheel drive, extra cab. You show up at Cars and Coffee and that, that thing will get swamped over mm -hmm. a lot of things there. That thing is gorgeous. Those things are sweet. It is interesting though, what Tanya was saying, it's interesting how Toyota and Honda always flip flop. I would like to throw out an idea. I have my background on an R32. Gorgeous car. Its entire production run, 89 to 94, is almost entirely in our window here. They had two other generations that launched in the 90s. Your R33, your R34, or your more quintessential 90s car. So even though most of these were made in the 90s, if you look at it, it kind of looks like an 80s car. Just styling-wise, it looks like an 80s car. I think that an R32, and everybody knows that's the one you actually want to take to the racetrack if you're going to do it, would be a really interesting entrant into this category. I mean, right? I mean, Nissan had three generations of this car in the 90s, but this one, I think I would argue, even though the 1989 300ZX, I would argue, is a 90s car, I could argue that this is kind of the king of the 80s. It just kind of came out right at the end and defined the decade. The poor man's 959. Here you go. This is what you do. Obviously, wasn't for sale in the US, but. Mark, is one of those the Sylvia? Is that one of those? The Sylvia is like the later 240s. Don might know this. For the GTR, you know the great-grandfather of that, the Japanese prince? Yeah, those were very, very nice cars. My mom had the first and only Japanese prince in California. It was a 67 Japanese prince, and she said it was just trash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they really were kind of recycled beer cans. I mean, that was always the <laughs> joke about old Japanese cars. I think that's why today... Whenever you see one, it's almost like take off your hat and give it a salute because this little guy survived and yeah. they were not meant to survive. They were, I don't know what the Japanese were thinking, if it was they literally wanted them to fall apart or if they were thinking, no, we got to get them together as cheaply as possible to beat the Americans. I grew up with 1971 240Z in the garage. The, I mean, we replaced every body panel on that car. 
over time, uh, just like in a 10 year period, it was kind yeah, of they, they rested coming off the assembly line and the dashboards <laughs> crack coming off the assembly line. I mean, the ones that survive, that's why I say I, whenever you see a Japanese car, you're like, holy cow, where did that come from? That's pretty cool, Jeff. Your mom had a Prince. That's pretty awesome. I want to speak to the R32 GTR. I have instructing experience in one at Pocono. And so I spent a couple days coaching one. And I will say I was always in love with the R32. I think it's a fantastic car. It's just every angle you look at it to Mark's point, it's a little quirky. It's got that 80s feel to it, but it's sort of 90s, but it's sort of not. You look at the interior and you're not really sure what period it's from. But when you get in it, it's a performer. It's shockingly fast. Like it's deceptively quick and it's very agile, a point and shoot. It's super analog. It screams eighties from a driving perspective. And it was one of those moments where I could say I got in my hero and I walked away completely satisfied versus a lot of other hero cars, which have been just terrible disappointments. The R32 was amazing, but everybody wants a GTR. And I looked into getting one of these a long time ago because there's companies here in the States, like in Florida and whatnot, that import these cars all the time. But if you turn your eyes to the UK, you can get the slightly tuned down version and then modify it later and get a GTS out of Britain. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same appearance package, slightly detuned motor, and they sell for a lot less. And they made a lot more GTSs than they made GTRs. Something to consider there. I also wrote in a four-door version of one of those, which was kind of funky, imported from Japan. Again, had some experience with these cars. If you can afford a GTR, do it. They're fantastic. Now, to your point, Mark, the joke is the R32 is the one you take to the track. The R33 is the one you buy your wife. And the R34 is the one you take to the car show. That still, I think, holds true even today. The R32 is the best performing out of the bunch. Going a little down Nissan Lane again, if I may. There was a car when Infinity first came out. And I've always liked it. I always thought it was a cool car, but unfortunately, not too many people did. And I believe it was called I-30. It was a little convertible four-seater, and it was a coupe four-seater. Yeah. I don't know if you remember those. I remember the I-20, but not the I-30. Oh, I remember the I-30. Me and Don, we're the elder statesman here, so... (laughs) You're not talking loud enough. I can't hear you. (laughs) Is anyone in there? I don't see you. They're a decent car, but man, they have some great motors in those. They were quick cars. You know, was it the um, Q45 was the large one? The I30 was your... Yeah, so I mean, they had some decent stuff. It's funny, Eric, you know, you bring up driving your heroes and you're going to be disappointed. I'll tell you, they had the Q45T, which gave you the special wheels and the little arrow mm. kit and whatever. Anyway, I remember I got to drive one of those. Judas Priest, that thing was insane. It was one of those cars where you step on the gas and you're gone right now. Very spirited for a 4,500-pound car. But what got me about that car, and this is where it gets weird, it shifts into second. And just as about to go into third, I floor it because I'm stupid. I couldn't believe it. You know, you hear about this, these hot rodders talking about, oh, I broke the wheels loose in second gear. Let me tell you something. That thing fishtailed for a quarter of a block trying to catch itself. I was blown away how much power that car had. Now, obviously, that wasn't what Infinity meant that car to do. It wanted it to have some guts. It wanted it to be comfortable, effortless moving, et cetera. And those early Infinities from the late 80s, early 90s were fantastic cars. Now, a contender for that, and in my opinion, is a better car, is the SC400 by Lexus, Mm -hmm. which I'm not sure exactly what year those came out. So it might break our 8990 barrier. But somebody said something about going all the way to 93. So I'm 
banking on that for saving me. I see where you're going there. And then in Japan, they had the Soar, I think it was called, which was like the same car and all that, which was available earlier. Going back to the Infinity for a minute, I kind of look at it and, you know, you talked on other episodes about being a poser and stuff like that. And the problem with those early Infinities is I'd rather have a Maxima because the Maxima, (laughs) when I show up with a Maxima, it goes, yeah, I show up with an Infinity and you're like, what what is this? It's like a ripoff Maxima, Ultima, whatever. It just, I I don't know. It doesn't speak to me in the same way that it does for you. So for the Maximas of that generation, I don't know why, but it became like everybody I hung out with, we used to call them the crack Maxis because it seemed like all the crackheads and crack dealers would drive Maximas. <laughs> mm-hmm. No less. We just started calling them crack Maxis. Yeah, you know, the Maxima was a great car. It was very powerful. It was called the four-door sports car for a reason. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was the Maxima that actually encouraged Honda to decide, fine, we'll build a V6 and put it in the Accord. And the Accord quietly cleaned the Maxima's clock yeah. in everything. And it never said we're a sports car. It never said we're performance oriented. It never said anything to that degree, but it was quieter. It was more comfortable. It had more features to it. It was more expensive, but it was a better car all the way around, even in handling, which is hysterical because everybody knows those V6 Accords, especially want a nose plow. They, well, Eric, what do you call that? Is that called understeer? Mm-hmm. When you turn the wheel and the car is still going forward, yep. is that what that's called? So they understeer like crazy. That was my fear, Eric. You were there when we raced that Corvette in Pennsylvania with my wife's Accord. My big fear was it's raining. The road is wet. If we got to turn that wheel, we're screwed because this Honda is just going to keep going straight. That's all it wants to do. So I see what you're saying about the Maxima, but I don't know. I mean, I think we'd have to put that to a test because I think the Infinity would, especially again, consider you are a little older than maybe the demographic we're trying to talk to. What should I buy? I've got my first little bit of money here. I can buy something. If you tell them buy a Nissan Maxima, guess what? You've got a 20, 25-year-old Nissan Maxima. Okay, kind of cool in its own right. But when you got the Infinity, you've got something rare, unique, but there was really nothing on that car that was Maxima. It had a bespoke V8. It had a bespoke transmission. It had a bespoke interior. It was all Infinity, the Q45, not the I or M30. The M45, I like that's like the Brutus. Yeah, yeah, M45 was good looking. I can't let the Q45 comment go though. Like obviously that car just needed a new tire. Like if you're yeah. if you're like if you're breaking loose into going into third gear. I mean, yeah, right. Well, that thing was insane. I could not believe the power that car had. It, it was it insane. Had 340 or something like that. Yeah. I had 300 plus horsepower in that thing. I mean, not back then, more like 260, but fair enough. Well, they were all 247 on paper for a long time, especially in the 90s, right? So Well, remember what is it some guy said that horsepower tells you how hard you're going to hit the wall and torque tells you how far you're going to push it. Push it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I gotta tell you, if that infinity hit a wall, it's going to push pretty damn hard. That thing had nothing but torque. Tanya's point earlier about, you know, Toyota and Honda flip-flopping. Nissan is in bed with Renault and they have been for now 20 years i sometimes wonder when i see an infinity on the road i'm like oh they still make cars like they're still doing that whole luxury thing of nissan but i feel like maxima is due for a resurgence the maxima has been around you can buy a 2023 nissan maxima wait they still make them yeah they're still in existence (laughs) my stand corrected I think they have a branding problem. They have a branding challenge. 
They never stopped production. And they haven't stopped production since the first one in 81. I thought it disappeared. It's like the eighth or ninth generation are up to now. Of them. But it looks like the Sentra, Ultima, they all look the same now. So yeah, that's why I don't, even, I don't even They're notice. They're doing the German model sausages of different lengths. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> Mark is absolutely right. Nissan has a major branding challenge. And unfortunately, so does Infinity. Infinity, when they got rid of that Q45, that first generation, that was it. They sort of slipped into obscurity. There was nothing left. It was like that comedian who has one joke and that's it. You know, it was crazy. It really, really was. One of the best Nissan uh, sales pitches ever was the fact that one where dogs love trucks. Yes, absolutely. Building on the whole Japanese thing, though, if we can get off the Nissan train, the Lexus no. SC400. The SC300 is the cool one. That's the one with the 2JZ. No one cares about the 400. Yeah, the 400 is a dog. The 300 has the 2JZ. That's all anybody cares and about. And a manual. Yeah, exactly. Manual. Yeah. If you can find one. If you yeah. can yeah, find fair one. Fair enough. You can swap it, though. You could. But my point is, though, the SC whatever, 400 or 300, whichever one you prefer, that was a very, very nice car. Very, very yeah. nice car for its day. And you talk about cheap. Once again, you're getting a car that's going to go three, 400,000 miles, no problem. And you're not paying very much to get into one. They're fine, fine automobiles. And of course, they got the big brother. If you want that mafia look, you've got the LS 400. But we can go the complete opposite of that. If you want to spend a shit ton of money, look like you're going a thousand miles an hour and the car never runs, you can buy a Maserati by Turbo. Did they make it after 83? It was 81 to what? 85, I thought, or 86. Something like that. That was 86. That's an 80s car if there ever was one. Fair yeah, enough. It really yeah, is. I'll give you that. Many of you have never heard of this car, and I forgive you for it. Don't say Zuzu Impulse. We're not talking about the Impulse. It's not happening. You mute yourself there, boy. Now, we are going to talk about another Toyota. Oh, now you have my attention. Finest Toyota ever built. Brown. It is all built by hand. Don't say Starlet. The Hachigo? No, Toyota Century. Oh, yeah, that's like the oh. precursor to the Lexus. That thing's massive. They still make it. And in fact, over in Japan, they are still considered the I Ching of Japanese cars. They they blow Lexus. It reminds me of the old Mercedes, like the grocers or whatever they were called. The yeah, 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 exactly. Mirrors out on the winglets. The diplomat machines, right? Those yeah. Well, awesome. the funny thing is, if you look at their history, they had V12s, they had V8s, they had inline sixes, they had all these crazy engines. But what I always got a kick out of these cars is the Americans, especially, I don't know about the Europeans, but the Americans, especially, we love our leather interior, man. You give us a leather interior, we got ourselves a luxurious car till the end of time right there. The Japanese, if you want leather in that car, you not only pay a premium for it, you've got to wait because they have to get the material because otherwise you're going to get a cloth interior. In fact, that cloth is not just cloth. No, sir. It is wool. Now, why is it wool? Why even do cloth? Because it's quieter. And when you do the leather in that car, they only put it in the back because the person riding the back doesn't want to have to hear the driver squeaking on their leather getting into the driver's seat. <laughs> That's right. it's, it's actually pretty awesome. <laughs> Cars are amazing. In fact, there's a great article, and I forget who wrote it. It was Car and Driver or somebody, but they toured the Century factory. And it is, you know, you talk about Bentley building their cars and Aston Martin, and they're in these little shops, and they got these little hammers, and they're hammering away. That is seriously the Toyota Century factory. You've got people who have been working there for 30 years. You've got people who have been apprenticing there for 10 because they want to work at Century. It is such an honor to work there. Their paint guy, oh, 
the paint is incredible on those cars. But again, going to that 25 year, we can import it over here now. The century falls into that school. It really does. I actually agree. I think that would be a really cool, cool damn import to grab would be one. I think I have a picture of one somewhere that I took in Texas on the road. Yeah, I remember oh, that. Yeah. In Texas. There's a guy in California that imports those things, brings in a couple a year or something like that to resell them. That would be a fun car to have. And if you could find it from somebody who's already specializing in importing it, that'd be fantastic. All right. So let's take this another way. Let's go back to Jeff. Jeff, what's on your list? I know you got a list. Honestly, I've exhausted it. The, oh, oh, dang. Because I got a couple more. The other stuff that I had on here, everybody already mentioned. And I've gotten through the, the whole thing. The only thing that I haven't talked about is kind of the more obvious. When you and I have talked, you know, I'm a Porsche guy. And so the 968, the 928, the 944 Turbo, if anybody mentions a 914 or a 924, I will poop in my hand and give it to you because those things are trash. Wow. Actually, Jeff, I'd like to see that. So 914. (laughs) It's like monkeys at the zoo. It's like, for instance, the 944, you can still get a very decent 944 Turbo, 10, 12 grand. Oh, yeah. I think you're better off, as we talked about with Kevin Duffy, a 924S or a base 944. The 944 turbos are just plagued with problems. But I agree with they you. Are. They're a beautiful body. There's the whole rivalry between the second gen RX-7 and the 44 turbo. If I had my druthers and I was going to pick a 944 turbo, I would get the last of the last and get a cabriolet and really just spend the money because they're so cool and they were so limited production. And I think they're better looking than the 968 convertible. The 968 is a beautiful coupe. It doesn't make it work in the convertible realm. And the 944 Turbo look really, really slick. And it's just so different. But if we're going to go that way, kind of talk about convertible sports coupes. There's a couple of British cars we've forgotten about. We could go down and venture. XJS? Well, not even that. <laughs> I got a thumbs up from Don. We're on the same wavelength here. You know me, I'm always I'm always itching for warm beer and a lot of troubles, you know. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so, I can get a warm beer, I'm happy. Well, if you like that, then you'll definitely like the Triumph TR7. Uh, no, my dear boy, no, those are rubbish. Oh, okay, then. If you don't like that, what about the TVR Tasman 280i? Is there a way to turn off his microphone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to drive a Tasman 280i. They're really neat. They are cobbled together, you know, hand-built in Blackpool and the whole nine yards. It's a parts bin car. Some of it's Mercedes. You know, it's a Ford Cortina engine. The suspension is some borrowed thing from Lotus, you know, all this kind of stuff. They're so unique. It's a super light car. They're actually kind of fun to drive. Again, very analog. If you like that wedgy convertible look and you want something different, the Tasman 280Is don't sell for a whole heck of a lot. I know the guy that sold the one that I drove. It was like a dark metallic brown, which was a super interesting, very 70s color. But I think he sold it for like 10 grand. You want something unique, something British, and Ford-powered, which means it will actually run. TBR is something to consider. So for British cars, I know it's not rare, but the Austin Minis were made through the 80s, and yeah. they started before, then went way after. And if you want to talk about a car that's plentiful for parts, because there's plenty of them out there, a bunch of my British friends hate the fact I always called it the British Volkswagen bug because in my opinion, it's what it was. It was, you know, easily built and everything. The cool thing about those cars is they've got such history and prestige to them with the rally racing that they did, as well as the fact that at one point in time, I don't know if they still do or not, but I want to say it was late 80s, early 2000s. They were still holding the fact that those cars 
could hold some of the highest G's and corners for the uh, how well it gripped the ground of all manufactured cars out. So something as cheap as that, being able to pull more G's in some of these supercars in turns is amazing. And having owned many of them and driven them, I can vouch for the fact they will hang in turns very well. See, he made all his friends angry by saying it was the British bug. You should have told them it was the British Fiat 500 and seen how they got really upset. <laughs> <laughs> We would be remiss not to talk about, I mean, if I guess if you love maintenance, the 80s through this 93 cycle of Aston Martin, some of that stuff looks so much cooler than it once did. Yes. I mean, at least to me, the virages and vantages of that era. When I was younger, I thought that they looked like hot garbage and the DB7 was, you know, the first good looking car that Aston Martin had made since the 60s, but as you know grown up and times change or whatever like i think they look pretty damn cool pretty muscly like really kind of sophisticated muscle cars a very kind of niche of their own and you can pick them up even just using bat as pricing in the 50-ish grand range and well then, then if we're going bridge what about you know a lotus which one the Esprit, the ultimate 80s cocaine yeah. car, the Lotus Esprit. Is the Esprit Turbo really an 80s car? It was designed and built so. in the 70s. Culturally, culturally, it's it was and it was made until 2004 or something. But culturally, it's an 80s car. I put it as an 80s car. It's the Dodge Viper of the 80s. <laughs> You drive that around, someone's gonna look at it, especially someone's not a car person. They're gonna like, but wow, look at that. You know, it's got very unique styling to it. I mean, it didn't change much over its whole span of its life. I know I'm a fan of them. I, I think they look great. You know, even with just that four cylinder, it's still it's got a little pep to it. I feel like there is a clear generational separation in the Esprit. And I'm not talking about the V8 Esprits because obviously they rounded them up. They made them very 90s looking, you know, all those kinds of things. But the early cars up until like 84, 85 with the Turbo Esprits, they really changed them. I think they got better as they got older until the V8s mm. came out. There's something weird about the early, let's call it the James Bond Lotus with those kind of like Kreger wheels that it came with and, and all that stuff. I, I'm just not a fan of those. To Mark's point, what I call the second generation is free. Definitely an 80s car, but it was still holding on to that wedge look of the Jalpa and the Countach and like all that stuff that started in the 70s. It's an 80s car, sports car, but a supercar, I guess you could consider it at that time. Still too disco for me it's got a very unique sound to it too though yes. I mean, that's the one thing it's, yes. it's got a very distinctive sound to it and it's fully submersible which is pretty, <laughs> pretty unique if you're in a tuxedo but if i have to pick between a lotus esprit and a ferrari 308 328 and i will go as far as to give don just a little bit of runway here and say the mondial i'd almost rather have one of those than the esprit Oh, I would too. have a Mondial and an Esprit. Honestly, yeah, I think so. Just because of the maintenance Ooh. factor, the rarity of the Esprit, um, crack a windshield and an Esprit, good luck. You got to get them like, made by some elf in the Midlands. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> not going to happen. So it kind of scares me. No, that's the elves are your friend. They work for warm beer. Yeah, you're, right? you're wandering around York being like, can anybody make a windshield? Yeah, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's one 97-year-old guy who used to work for, you know, British Leyland that can do it. But the obscurity of the Lotus stuff has always scared me away from those cars. And it's still prolific today when you look at the Elise. Like, you get the slightest crack in that clamshell and uh, total the whole car. But it scares a lot of people. You know, people, oh, I love it. I love the Elise. This is the problem. Is this, yeah, the maintenance. I love to drive someone else's Lotus. They're perfect that way. You know what I mean? Best rental car ever. 
to Mark's point, he was saying we've gotten older and look at these cars the way they looked back then. It's like they're more attractive now. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that when they came out from the factory, a lot of these cars, they didn't pop very much. It was kind of dull looking. But as times went on, people have painted them different colors, put different wheels on, done different things to them. It really brings out, I would say, like the true beauty of those cars. An example, I was looking at some of the, I think it was Advantage I was looking at online earlier. The pictures of it from the factory were ugly, but there was one that a yeah. guy had cleaned up and everything. I was like, it's a beautiful looking car. But if you look at the factory picture of it, it was like, ah, that's crap. It's weird how just little things can make a car look so much better and more attractive. And I just recently had that experience with one of the weirdest cars, the Saab 900 Turbo. There's one running around that I've seen, <laughs> you know, 90% of them are black and the whole nine yards. And I drove one of those cars years ago. And I thought they were quirky and weird. And I just couldn't get over the, the hot dog Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile kind of styling that it has. But now... I look at it and I go, those are really cool. You don't see them anymore. They're actually, the design language of the 900 was kind of ahead of its time. It's actually a really cool car. And that's one I wanted to throw out there for people to consider is kind of look at the Swedes. If we give Don any more runway, we're going to be in this weird 850, 740, 240, you know, going on about boxy Volvos forever. The 9,000 CD sub. 9,000 CD sub. I was going to let you go there because that's an Opal Vectra or one of those rebadged. It is a sub. When I was a station owner, when a guy had one, and I used to love messing with because on those, the ignition switch is in the center. It's better. Yeah. So we'd be going down the road and you come to a stop sign. I'd reach down, grab the key, pull it out, and throw it out the window. Yeah. <laughs> and he used to get pissed every time because he'd have to pull the handbrake, get out, get the key, get back in, start out. He's like, do not do that again. I'm like, what? <laughs> But thousands as well. I actually owned one of those and it was a great car. The great thing about it is like in England, not many cars came with air conditioning because it's not common for them to have. That was one of the few cars when I got over there had air conditioning. I was like, I loved it. So everybody used to love riding with me. One of the summers I was there was one of the hottest they'd had in years. And like old people were dying off of like flies because of how much heat it was and they couldn't handle it. And I had one of the few cars with air conditioning. So it was great for long trips and everybody used to love riding with me. I was hoping somebody would trip over the Saab 9000 landmine because if you look at the Vauxhalls and the Opals that they were built on. No. (laughs) He says no. It's true. But if you look at Opal, which is a brand that was here in the 70s with the Manta and a lot of other cars, if you kind of reach back in the 80s and you start looking at the Vectra, the Calibra, the Omega, there's some actually really neat Opals in there that you could bring over now because we're, again, outside of that statute of limitations for gray market cars. Looking at some of these other German and British brands, it opens up some other options for collectors looking for something different. Yeah, and the Saab... Volvo, either way you want to go with it, going back to your cars and coffees, you're probably not going to see another one. Given the current audience of, let's say, 20-somethings that are running around in those cars and coffees, they've likely never even seen a Saab 900, 9000, or any of the numerous Volvos that have been built. You're going to have a car that's going to attract some attention, especially in the case of the 900. You've got a car that was engineered so strangely. I mean, the engine is in backward. What they were thinking, I don't know. If you've ever worked on one of their cars, and I haven't, having seen enough of them, the accessibility is absolutely incredible, as long as you don't have to do that water pump. Because again, that water pump is up against the firewall. 
So if you're going to do a water pump, the easiest thing in the world to do is do a Porsche style and just drop the engine. Yeah, just pull it out and do the whole thing, which unfortunately that takes us to the maintenance regimen. And as we've been talking, a lot of these cars fell by the wayside simply because owners didn't want to put the effort or the money into maintaining them. But God, when did they build the first 900? Was that 81? It replaced the Sonnet, didn't it? Or something like that? Yeah, it did. And the Sonnet was a weird one. He had a little V4. I mean, come on. That, and a two-stroke in some cases, right? So it all depends yes. on the year. Yeah. Yes. There's some other weird ones on the list. I'm just going to mention them for people that maybe they want to like research these cars. I know, Don, you and I joke about the Citation, especially the X11 is the hot rod, precursor to the Cavalier and all this other kind of stuff. Right. And, then, and then you have the Cimarron, the Cadillac version of that. You know, and I mentioned the Isuzu Impulse, but also I think it was Jeff said early on about the Brat. Don't forget about the Subaru XT. And then XT. even the SVX, right? Because that sort of began in the really late 80s, early 90s. Oh, and don't forget the Chevy Beretta. That's another one that people forget about too. If you want. And the Lumina. Don't forget the Lumina. Now, no, we can all forget about the Lumina, but the Beretta <laughs> with its 3.4 liter chain driven V6. The Lumina no, had a 3.4 no, liter no, with no. dual overhead no, it cams, didn't. That my car friend. didn't exist. Trash. Oh, and, and they have the Lumina Z24, yes, whatever it was. Yeah. The Z34 was the Lumina. The Z24 was the Cavalier. My mom had one of those, the convertible. Yeah, they were nice, weren't they? Before we get to my final pitch here, because I got a good one for you, a car that's, that's often overlooked from the 80s, I want to hear about Fiero ownership from an actual ah. Fiero owner. Because awesome. that is an 80s car if there ever was one. I took great car. I mean, obviously, you've got no powers of that. But I mean, it was like a little go-kart. I mean, you sat low to the ground in that car. I mean, you were way down on the floor of that thing. You know, I'm 6'1", and I had plenty of room in that car. Having space in that wasn't an issue. I mean, obviously, you're not going to have much luggage space. You just have your passenger. That's it. But very short but wide. So, I mean, thing handled great. You know, I never had a problem. I mean, of course, you know, I was in high school when I had it. So trying to really kind of judge it based on other things. You know, I really enjoyed that car. If I ever came across one, I'll look around if something catches my eye. You know, getting there, I almost bought one just to park in the garage to have another one. But the thing is, is like, do I go with the GT that I had that had the notchback? But then you also got the newer one was like the was it eighty seven eighty eight they had the you know they had the glass go back the two M six. But then you had the more rare one. They had the Indy Fiero. GT with the head scoop on the roof and that. I don't know. It was a lot of fun. You know, and I've seen people here and there, they've stuffed an LS in them. That would be a fun little car to get up and go with it. And it's unfortunate because I know they had it in the works to bring out a whole new model with that, but then they killed it off because something else happened. But you know, the next gen car that they were going to come out with was going to be spectacular. It was going to be longer. What it was going to be a great car. I almost got to say a Corvette killer type situation, but that's why it was things going to go too much head to head with the Corvette. Yeah, that's why it was killed. There was only room at GM for one two-seater yeah. sports car. And if you remember, the Fiero already had the mid-engine thing going on. They were adding twin turbos to it. Chevrolet couldn't hear this. And the next thing you know, yeah, oh, well, Fiero has to go away. You don't see that many of them out there anywhere. I mean, the whole car was pretty much plastic anyways on the outside. You know, so your panels and stuff, it's all your stuff underneath that you got to worry about rust-wise and that. For four or five grand, you could probably hunt down a pretty decent one. It's going to have miles on it, but... Be a lot of fun, something unique. 
Is it true that it shared a lot of parts with the Chevette, which was basically just an Opel Cadet? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, that car only had, pull all the panels off like that. That thing wasn't anything special underneath. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a cheap car. I mean, it wasn't expensive. I guess you say unique about it was because it was a mid-engine car. Even the 6 it only had 140 horsepower, 138, something like that. It wasn't going to get up and go, but I mean, it was small. It was light. It didn't need a lot of, the power to weight ratio it was needed. really good. Yeah. Again, if you're looking for something that's going to be unique, stand out at a Cars and Coffee and have some fun with, you can tweak it a little bit if you want, have something. You can work on it yourself. Four or five grand, you can have something that no one else pretty much has. You're not going to have your own Fiero section at any car event, that's for sure. My cousin had a Fiero, and that was one of the first cars I ever worked on when I was doing brakes for. It had the twist-out calipers, so it didn't go back in. I had never done one like that before. I'm trying to press the caliper out and it did not want to press out after calling some people because this was, you know, before internet was, you know, as easy as it is now during the dial-up days. I reached out to a couple of guys that worked at shops and they're like, yeah, you got to actually turn in the piston and as you compress it or it's not going to go in. See, you just hadn't owned a Volkswagen yet. If you did, you would have already known this. This is like common stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Mark brought up something in the chat, and I think it's the second banker's hot rod, which is the BMW 635 and 635CI and all those. I think those are, like you mentioned before, looking at them with new eyes, or I guess old eyes now. I think reverse aerodynamic front end and low slung rear end, it's actually quite an attractive car. And I think the 6 Series doesn't get as much press as it should. I love those. They drive great. Especially the, uh, I know 635, but the M6 Series of those are fantastic too. I mean, you can get four people in that car if you needed to. That's a great car. Because if you can get a Euro version, it's got 286 horsepower, 256 in the U.S. version on the M6. And even when you go down to 635, I think it's only about 230 or 220, I think, horsepower in that, if I memory serves me. So, I mean, you don't have a big disparaging you know, range that in horsepower, those. I think those are gorgeous, sharp-looking cars. I'm a big fan. They're super aggressive looking now. Like yeah. you, and then you're like, ah, eh, it's, it's a BMW. But now, you know, square body, round headlights, and those wheels, it just looks menacing. You're like, you show up at a traffic light, that thing, people are like, what the hell are you driving? You know, what's in that thing? Yeah, I think that the 635 CSI came first, right? I mean, that was the first car they released that had that M1 engine in yeah. it. And that was the big deal. Like the CSI had the M1 engine. Yeah, it was a 3.5 liter in line six. That car goes all the way back to the 630 was the first one that they released. And of course, before that, you had the E9 chassis, which is what this car is basically the son of E9, which is your 2800 CSI and the 3.0 CSI. Amazing cars. You know, when I was growing up, it's funny, Eric, you say that ah, they're just BMWs. This was one of my ultimate dream cars. Yeah, my dream car list only has five cars on it, if I remember correctly. And that's still one of the cars on there. You know, it's funny. I'd love to have an M6. Love, love, love to have an M6. Having driven both of them, the 635 CSI and the M6, yeah, the M6 is quicker, handles better, blah, blah, blah. The 635, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no shame in having a 635. And I've driven the five-speed and I've driven the automatic, and there is a difference. The five-speed is going to give you a lot more pep. But if you're just into cruising and enjoying and having a nice little night out, there's no shame in having that automatic. And, and no, they're fantastic cars. They're well-built. You'll find these cars hitting 300,000, 350,000 miles, despite what Eric thinks of BMWs, but that's only if they maintain them. And again, BMWs are notorious. They absolutely demand being maintained. In fact, these cars, if you look on the dashboard, they actually have this series of lights that go across and they're, they're like green, 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 yellow, yellow, red. 
And that's your maintenance light. And when that red comes on, you've got to get it in for servicing. Otherwise, it starts going absolutely berserk. You have pulled up, Mark, the one that I wanted more than anything. The bright Cinnabar red with the, uh, what do they call it? Lotus interior, I think they call that. Yeah. That, that is the one that I wanted. One word of caution with those cars that I think is still a problem today. The factory wheels, not the one that Mark has behind him. Mark has some BBS wheels on there. But the factory 635 wheels were metric size. And there was only one maker who made tires for it, and that was Michelin. I don't know yep. if that still holds true today, but back in the day, oh my God, those tires were a fortune. So most people just swapped out the wheels. They just bought a BBS set of wheels and they bought some aftermarket kind of wheel, and they just put whatever they could find and put those tires on. Wasn't there. it TRX? Something like that Michelin TRX mm-hmm. thing was? Yeah. yeah, there was. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was Michelin TRX tires. And they were the only ones that would fit that car. That gives you an idea of how well engineered that car was. Let's name another car that wears bespoke tires. Oh, the Bugatti. Yeah. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of how much thought BMW was putting into the six series BMWs because they knew their target was ta-da, the 560 SEC, the 500 SEC, those big Mercedes. That was the market they were going for. And then that 928 showed up from Porsche. And I was like, oh my God, as if we didn't have enough problems competing with Mercedes, now we're yeah. competing with Porsche. Fortunately, the buyers kind of delineated themselves out and Porsche people with, with the 928, et cetera. I think with the 80s, though, in BMW, obviously people always gravitate to anything E30, especially the M3s and stuff like that. And the 635, instantly recognizable, classic German muscle car. But the, the one that gets forgotten, and it is an M car, and I think is good value for money today, is the E28 M5. That thing packs a punch. It's understated basically only came in black. So it's perfect for me. It's one of those cars that I've personally been in them, driven one. They're fantastic. Again, underappreciated. They just don't have the same... Je ne sais quoi. Yeah, they, exactly. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> People don't look at this 5 Series, the M5, in the same way they do, let's say, the M6, the 850, or even the E30. At any rate, I think the E28 is something to look at. If you start looking at the M5s of that, the E28, you're actually finding a very, very expensive car. If you find one that is cheap, always keep in mind the mantra that the cheapest exotic car is going to be your most expensive one. The one that might be of interest that does get overlooked, and I don't know the chassis numbers, if you remember the movie Ronin, there's a little, I think it was a Peugeot chasing an M5. That M5, but basically it's like a 91, 92 It's that rounded kind of body style of the BMW. Those are very underrated. I think people even forget that they had the Ronin M5. They didn't build too many of them. They were in the shadow of the E28 that you're talking about. And then, of course, later they built even prettier, better M5. Yeah, like the E39. So, yeah, if you want a bargain from the family, that might be it. One of the things that dawned on me when we were talking about the E30s, that was one of the first 80s cars I ever had owned and drive. BMW was thinking ahead with that for the fact of the fuel economy because it had a little sweeping gauge on the back and forth depending on how much throttle you were getting it. The BMWs have had that forever. It's never worked right. It's super inaccurate and they keep doing it. It's like tradition, right? You know, keep refining that bad idea forever. It's fun to play with it though because it's like you just floor it and it would drop down to zero and then you'd let off and get back up to like 50. Dan, I'm surprised that's coming from you. You're the Chevy guy of the group and even I know the Ford guy here that my caprice has one of those little things too it goes back and forth to wrap this up before we do our quick lightning round i found one car and i'm I'm surprised don you didn't go there 
and it dovetails right off of our muscle and malaise episode that we did. Remember, I closed that episode out talking about the Ford Fairmont and how yeah. basically it was a it was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, you're going to go to the LTD LX. Yes, yes, yeah. that is the continuation yeah. of that thread. That car, oh yeah, understated, underrated, undervalued. And you're getting a more modern Fox body right. underneath of that LTD LX. Right. That's a car I would highly consider. They only built it for two years, 84, 85, and they only built just a little over 3,000 for the entire run. Where that car started, I don't know if you know this or not, but that was Bob Bondurant who built that car, not Bob himself per se, but Bob's team out of his school. They had these little LXs. They were trying to teach people how to drive high performance, which is impossible when you got three students in the car, each who weigh roughly 200 pounds, plus the driver. And they're trying to get this six-cylinder Ford that's smog-choked, et cetera. There really was nothing they could do, but they realized that, yes, it's a Fox platform car. We could take the engine out of one of our Mustangs, throw it into this car, and we've suddenly got a four-door hot rod. And they did. And for the longest time, they didn't think anything of it. They just had a training car that had guts. And one day, some of the Ford executives came out to see the Bondurant, what was going on out there, what were they doing with our Mustangs, et cetera. And Bob himself took him for a drive in that LX before it was an LX. It was still just an LTD. He's rowing through the gears and they were like, this thing got a V8 and five-speed. Guys, do we build this car? No, we don't build this car. We don't know where this car came. Bob, where'd this car come from? Well, let me tell you a story. And he told them a story. And the next thing you know, they're going back to Dearborn and they're coming up with a plan to build a five liter LX. And really what that was, was a stopgap. SHO and Taurus were being planned out. SHO was on the very, very back burner, but they knew they wanted a high performance Taurus, but the Taurus was on the front burner. They were investing billions into building the Taurus. This was a great stopgap. This was a way to show people, hi, we're Ford and we do have performance four-door sedans check this out and there it is the LTD LX but it was never marketed less than 3,500 were built I'll say that 3,260 and if you look at the one Mark has up that car actually lives or lived I don't know if it's still there but that car actually lived in Long Beach that car is where that car is from and that is an original LX LTD but they pulled out the original carbureted 302 and they put in an 89 five liter from an 89 Mustang, gave it a lot more horsepower, a lot more torque, et cetera. Then he did the suspension. He did everything. That car right there, the one that Mark has behind him is an incredible, incredible reinterpretation. But here's the beautiful thing. And again, we're talking to people who are thinking about their very first collectible car. Yeah. If you're into the four-door performance under the radar car, SHO is sell for twice as much. It's incredible how many people want an SHO. They don't even think about this car. Now, yeah. granted, the SHO is quicker. The SHO is faster. The SHO handles better. The SHO is more comfortable. There was a lot more resources put behind SHO than LTD LX. It doesn't matter all these things that SHO can do that this LTD can't, because you know what an SHO can't do? What? Is get a coyote shoved under its hood. And you can't get this. Well, you, or, or you could spend $5 on that five liter and kick that SHO's ass. Oh, a thousand percent. A thousand percent. You could. Yeah, absolutely. Five, maybe oh, five six or seven dollars. I'll give you $10 total. It's rear wheel drive, manual transmission all day long. You can beef up that V8. The SHO's downfall is that it was front wheel drive. Yes, it had the Yamaha and all that other stuff. And great, it would blow its doors off. But in the long run, 
that's a better car. That's a better collector car. It's a sleeper. It checks yeah. all the boxes. And it's right up there with that Mercedes we talked about as an awesome candidate for a prospective buyer looking at something from this time period. That was my final thought before we go into our lightning round. And what I want to do is I want to pass this to Brad, who's been really quiet and say, would you buy anything off of this list? Um, No. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I would. I would buy, uh, I have a short list of cars that I like. Okay. A notchback Mustang 924S. Bar. I expect that handful of shit to be mailed to Eric's address. I can give it to you after the call. Um, <laughs> I'll get it from him later. And then the creme de la creme for me is a 1986 GMC Sierra 3500 Dually. Oh, wow. Very, cool. Very specific, but it's the essential truck from the movie Lethal Weapon 2. Martin Riggs used it to pull down a house on stilts. I want to use it to haul mulch. So since Brad started us off, y'all get to pick one car from the 80s. Money's no object. Whatever you want. One car from the 80s. What is it? What's it going to be? Let's go with Mount Man Dan. Where, buddy? The block. Come back to me on this. I got to think about what I would buy because I already own so many 80s of what I want. Harlequin Square Body. Ooh, that's an interesting idea there. You are a bad, bad man with that Lotus Carlton behind you there, sir. <laughs> we'll get into that later. So since we went there, Mark, what have you got? Ah, shit. If I had to pick, you know, I go back earlier in the conversation and honestly, we've skipped it. We totally skipped it. We didn't talk about it at all. It would be hard for me to pass on like an r5 turbo renault mid-engined hot hatch kind of like the craziest never should have actually been built car yep that was ever built and if i'm thinking like a quintessential unobtainium 80s car for me as a kid and admittedly they're stupid they're six-figure cars these days 100 percent. but you know for me personally that's where I'd land. You know, I do think the Lotus Carlton sneaks into our... Because it's based off an 80s voxel, yep. right? So it's it's a very 80s platform. It was released in 93, right on the edge of our barrier. You know, of course, it's very distinct history. If it was really my money and I had to pick, I'd do an R5. Maybe we'll do an episode about the colonists and the colonies and talk <laughs> about Australian cars and British cars in more detail at another point. Because we didn't even talk about Holdens or the Falcons or any of that stuff that the Aussies it's, had going you on. You know, right? it's like three hours is not enough. No, it never is. It, well, that's why we keep doing these, right? <laughs> can't cover it all in three hours. So let's go to William. Anything you want from the 80s. Well, I say money's no object. Whatever you want. You get one choice. Just one choice, but I'd get my hands out an F40. Yes! Money! Hey! <laughs> Always count on William to go big money. <laughs> big money, William Ross. And then if it's going to come down, say I'd go with an M6. Or I'd go down, but then stepped out, I'd go with the notchback Fox Body Mustang. And then my Fiero. Jeff, what have you got? If you could buy one car from the 80s, what would it be? Huntash. And if I was going more kind of normal, I'm really on that Dodge Shelby Charger, the late 80s manual with the turbo. They were considered butt ugly for the longest time. A lot of people still think they're dog doo-doo. And they're cool now. All of it. They're now cool. that a lot of those are coming in, like the, the Fox bodies that you guys have been talking about, all that stuff that was considered kind of secondary to the cooler stuff is now kind of becoming, I think, like Dan was saying, more nostalgic now. And so some of the beauty is coming out in the nostalgia, as well as what Dan also mentioned, some of the customization. 
And so when you throw something under the hood that shouldn't be there, that makes it go faster, that's cool. You put new wheels on it, that's cool. Fancy paint, all that stuff makes it really desirable. All right, Dan, he teed you up. Do you have an answer yet? He actually took what I was going to say with the Countach because I was thinking about it. I was like, you know what? I was like, I really loved that as a kid. Wait, are you serious? Like, you would you go for an Italian car? Yeah, that because so here's the thing: is it's a hard debate between that because the Countach was awesome back in the day, but. The F40, I think, is so much prettier. I don't know what it was about the Countach. It was like, maybe it was just the way it was promoted back then, but it was like forefront right in our face. But the F40 was more quiet about Dude, it. The Countach was the centerfold in the magazine, right? I mean, yeah. it's on just... the Trapper Keepers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean... that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I had the Testarossa Trapper Keeper. That's all I'm saying. All our young listeners are like, what's a Trapper Keeper? <laughs> Definitely no money limit would be one of those two because they were epic supercars of that era and they're just amazing cars. But if I had an unlimited budget, I would definitely dump a lot more into more square bodies. Oh, Jesus. All right. They, they, now you just invalidated everything you just said before that. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Don, over to you. What do you got? And don't say Chrysler TC. <laughs> Cadillac Alante, baby. No, uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to join the Countach Brigade because I've always been a Countach guy. I've always loved Lamborghini. I love the FU attitude that comes with any Lamborghini. I got very little against Ferrari. I have some against Ferrari, but uh, no, I'm going I'm to go with uh, Countach. And one that we didn't talk about that maybe we should have because they are reasonably cheap as long as you can keep them on the road. And that would be the Maserati Quattroporte. I love those cars. Yeah. They were a brick of a car. And if you could maintain them, they drove like no other. They were fantastic drivers. And then I got to go back to my high school days. You know, dad, forgive me because we were raised Ford. But I have got to have an 89 Pontiac Trans Am GTA. With the bowling ball hubcaps, right? And that'd be the 82. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, the 82 would have the bowling balls. But the 89 would have those gold mesh ABS. Yep. The remake of the honeycombs. It'd have a black paint job. The leather interior, the T-tops, and the 5.7 liter if yeah. I could have, you know, things my way. I know. William went high dollar. I'm surprised Mark didn't just suddenly say 959 just to go completely <laughs> Porsche on that. You know, in the chat, there were things popping up like Lancia Stratos and Delta HF Integrale and things like that. Those are all awesome cars. And you know what? I am in the F40 camp. I've seen many of them in person. I love those cars. They sound fantastic. It's hard to beat the F40, but because we are talking about the 80s and I still think the French are the king of the hatchbacks, you know, outside of the GTI and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to lean a little into my favoritism of all things not Citroen and go with the Bugatti EB110. Is that an 80s car? It is technically designed in the 80s. It came out in 1991. Because it fits our criteria. I'm in the window, right? It's I'll give it to you. It's French. It's a supercar. Paint it not blue. It looks like the Batmobile. It's absolutely incredible. The coolest ugly car out there. I love those. Those things are great. Those are fantastic. Yeah, I got to see one at speed and it, it left an impression on me. That's for sure. I got to see one at Goodwood sitting next to a new Bugatti. It was pretty amazing. And as a kid, that car made a huge impression on me. I still think of it as a 90s car, though, just saying. Well, Brad, anything you want to add on top of that before you take us home? 
No, all strong choices. I still stick with my pickup truck. Bring your garage or collection to the next level with Don Weyberg over at GarageStyleMagazine.com. Interested in purchasing an exotic car from the 80s? Then be sure to reach out to William Ross at the Exotic Car Marketplace. Thanks again to Jeff Willis for coming back on Break Fix. Be sure to catch him on more episodes and pick up a copy of his book, Human and the Machine. And you're guaranteed to catch Mark, Mountain Man Dan, and Tanya on another episode of Break Fix in the near future, so stay tuned for that. Thanks again to our panel for another great What Should I Buy debate. That's right. And like all good What Should I Buys, except for, I think, the Italian one, we never really come to a conclusion, but we hope we left you with a lot of food for thought. Don't take our advice. Take our advice. It's your money. Spend it how you like, but enjoy whatever it is that you buy. And remember that if you buy a car from the 80s, it's going to put a smile on your face. Well done, gentlemen. Good job. Thanks, guys. I will see you all very, very soon. Thanks, guys. Later. See you all. See you guys. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, gummy bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.